Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast that occasionally covers movies on the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, Darren. How are you doing today? It's an early one. We're by, back back to doing kind of weekend mornings and um, in in... In the childcare thing, it was kind of up early this morning and then back to sleep, which is good. A good thing we've been able to do is get a little sleep between about seven a.m. and ten, and then I woke <laughs> up and I was like, "When is that podcast recording?" <laughs> um, we we are professionals. We are, I mean, like to be fair, when we used to do Sunday morning podcasts, there was always a nice breakfast beforehand as well. Well, Less I, I, I I grabbed a quick breakfast. Um, you did. Uh, you asked me if there was yogurt in your beard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the what I was saying. That's what the 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 Zoom, and we're really getting a hilarious behind okay. the scenes conversation. Um, that the the Zoom is like a mirror, and you can check if you have anything in your teeth or in your beard. But how are you, Darren? I'm I'm good. I'm always good. Um, I'm always fine, Andrew. I'm always fine. I want to pry. Ah, I'm learning video editing. That's my week. Oh, I'm learning cool. how to video edit. Um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, but yes, joining us this week uh, at incredibly short notice. Very. Are you doing lots of star wipes? Uh, I mean. <sighs> What other wipes are there? That's the that's the question. Um, it's it's incredible how uh, both intuitive but also frustrating it is. Where it does so much more than you want it to do. We're like, I just want to line up the pictures so they come one after another. And it's like, have you thought about transitions? It's like I'm not there yet. Give me a moment. Don't rush me. Um, but yes, I am a very high maintenance it's video a, editor student. Video editor is pressurizing you into doing things you don't want to. <laughs> We do have a helpline for that. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this AI programming Which it make me so angry. <laughs> programming it with AI, um, it was a big mistake. But yes, joining us for this discussion, fantastic guest joining us at short notice, early on a Saturday morning, the wonderful Luke Dunn. How are you, Luke? Uh, I am very good. I'm 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 very happy to be here on a on on a Saturday morning. I the two fifty initially pulled me in with those like morning breakfasts. Yes. And over time, I've I've had to stick around just like talk about movies with my friends, which is also good. You it's don't not even as good get as a Friday, voucher but... now. <laughs> but no, I'm a you good can't for... redeem it, unfortunately. Darren, I I imagine like I, I I imagine a trajectory for your videos where things come full circle and people pour over your videos to see like what do they have to say about the moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> What's really going on? In the, you know? Yeah, it these, was in fact a big disappointment. What, what do these happen? editing choices mean vis-a-vis -vis the moon landing? I mean, they are star wipes for a reason, Luke. It'll, <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be like the 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 kind of um, interesting take will be. Well, Darren wasn't a contemporary source. Um, <laughs> landing, we have to take that into account as well. It's, yeah, it's a good point. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna go turn my bread around. I'll be one second. It's a bread cast. This it, morning. it is indeed. Luke, Luke, unfortunately, having been left to his own devices, had to fend for himself and prepare his own Saturday morning breakfast. You say you say that as if <laughs> um, every other human being does not have to do that. No, it's it's like as if it's like the emergency. 
<laughs> he's he's it, you know having to to um like I, like there's rationing and all the shops are closing and it's um we have to make bread ourselves yeah yeah, yeah no I, I i i um i was looking at how easy um making soda bread is and i was thinking i might just do that well, it was a very lockdown. It's something I associate with lockdown is the making of bread. Yes. Thing is, I don't make bread. I sorry, I don't, I don't really eat much bread, so I don't know if I um if it would be a good idea to 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 make us. Hey, I'm back. The bread has been turned. The bread has been turned. All right. When you're gonna have to leave in twenty minutes, turned again. We will talk more about the bread then. But what we're <laughs> gonna talk about to start with is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, listeners to this podcast will know Luke is a recurring guest on this podcast. What typically happens is a movie comes in and I go to Luke and I say, hey, Luke, how would you like to talk about The Rise of Skywalker? And before Luke can reply, yes, I would love to, I'm like, great, you're already on board. But with everything that's happening at the moment, things a bit chaotic, I actually departed from that format and I asked you, Luke, what you would like to talk about. Of the movies on the list we have not yet covered, which ones would you like to discuss? And you came back with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Why was that? Um, I I think Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a funny one because if you were to imagine what kind of movie a person on the internet who votes for their favorite movies of all time would pick for their list, Monty Python is the one where I'd be like, that's definitely going to be on there. You know, The Godfather, Heat, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's the kind of the, the, the trinity of guys on the internet in the 2000s picking yeah. <laughs> out their favorite movies. But for me specifically, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was one of the first DVDs that I ever owned. My parents got us a DVD player in two thousand and Christmas 2002. Or Christmas 2001? No, Christmas 2002. And with it, they got us like three DVDs, which were, I don't, I thought, I feel like they came with the DVD player, which is very like, they were just issues. Very yeah. like early, early 2000s uh, electronics transaction. Like, you know, you Ooh. get like a PC back in the day and they just throw in like the most random. <laughs> The game that they cannot sell. Whatever was in the back, like it's yeah. probably not a good game if we guess what those three are because they could be anything. But will yeah. will 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 we each get like one uh, guess or or uh, okay. how are we going to do this? They're all comedies. Oh, um, okay. One okay. was one was a television series, not a film. But oh, okay. If you, if you want to go for it, I think you'll get one at least. <laughs> But I mean, okay. Monty Python is obviously the the one that was that was a TV show, right? It's no, it was Grail. it was oh. it was Holy Grail was 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 ah okay. was the one that we got. Uh, Blackadder was the was the TV okay. show. Oh, and then one other comedy film. Something about Mary? No, it was Airplane. That's what two. I was going to guess, actually. No, no, Airplane Two. <laughs> Airplane Two. <laughs> I like that. Which is. Again, like uh, a very funny thing to to as an impressionable youth watch because it is just all the same jokes from Airplane. <laughs> but you haven't seen Airplane. Yeah, I hadn't seen Airplane, and then, and then years later watching Airplane, it was like the same feeling that most people <laughs> got from watching Airplane too. 
But in reverse. I've already seen this, yeah. yeah. I think I um, might have done yeah, it the same way about. I don't know how it ended up happening that way, but but I think it's possible a lot of people did and, and they just don't remember because the movies are essentially identical. <laughs> one of them has Robert Stack and the other one has William Shatner, to be fair. Well, I, I, I do think it would be a good comedic bit for, for a comedy sequel to, like... Gus Van Santa and like just live literally <laughs> frame for frame to the exact same movie as 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 before. That's the kind of chaotic and, and very silly and irreverent comedy that Monty Python would appreciate. Because yeah, uh, my my parents got me that DVD player. It came with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm like, my parents like it, it's a very Monty Python are like fish. You know, it's like a very specific not. They're too big to be like a cult fandom, or with, with a PH. Yeah, 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 like Rush. Yeah. But 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 they they attract a certain type, which is not my parents at all. But my parents knew Monty Python. I don't think my dad would have seen it; it would have been banned at the time. <laughs> uh, but they, I think they they had residual goodwill for Monty Python because like they loved like Faulty Towers. And like a fish called Wanda and that kind of thing, right? Which would also that that would have been comedy. That, Monty Python adjacent. Yeah, yeah, that would have been comedy kind of stuff that they would have introduced me to at the same time. But for for me and my uh, older brother particularly, I think it was a really spot on, laser precision thing of like, this is the kind of thing that you would like. <laughs> Which parents are often off the mark about, but but in this case, I think the writing was on the wall. They had weird kids, <laughs> and they were like, probably, probably, probably their Monty Python kid, and they were right because with no context and no kind of prior introduction to this style of comedy, like Fawlty Terrace is very different to this. It was like the ending of 2001 <laughs> like for a child to be like what is this this madness and I was obsessed with, with this movie uh, and also it was all one of the three that I owned so <laughs> we, we would have watched this about once a week maybe for like a, a solid year and it, it did get to the point where I knew pretty much the whole thing off by heart which, which, which Blackadder was it? It was the Victorian one. I can't remember the name of it. Okay, so it was one of the later good ones as opposed to the kind of odd first season. Yeah, because I remember then like watching the first season and again being like, why, why is this so off-putting? And... <laughs> Although I kind of appreciate it now. It's kind of like a, a anti-comedy in a way. It's like a a pre- precursor to like Tim Heidecker kind of stuff. <laughs> In terms of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you are correct to single this out as like the starter pack IMDb, where this is one of the 100 percenters, a movie that has been on the list since its inception, dating back to April 1996. It reached its highest rank in August 1998. Andrew suggested a game. Let's play a game. I'm going to ask Luke and then I'm going to ask Andrew to guess closest without going over. So like closest without going too high, without ending up above it on the list. And by above, I mean closer to one, because this is something we always have difficulty with. Prices, right? Closer to one. Because this... So how high, starting at 250, ending up at one, do you think 
Monty Python and the Holy Grail got at so, its peak. Can I just be clear? The, 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 the way to be a stinker is to say 250 and not to say one, right? Yes, because that... One way, is the way to almost certainly lose. Lose, yes. Yeah. One is the way to almost certainly lose, yeah. Oh, good. Okay, so... So actually, Andrew, you go first since you I go the first game. since, I, Luke, since give... I brought up the possibility of yeah 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 of being a stinker. The, the, the one cent. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how high was not on the top two fifty with 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 Redmond and um, Method Man, but how high did this movie go? Thirty. Uh, Five. Okay, you're saying thirty-five. Luke, your choice. I am going to say ten. Wow, gutsy! Again, gutsy. this is this is such IMDb voter coded. <laughs> it was thirty. Congratulations, Andrew! Oh, you get a toaster. Wow. You were you were like so close actually. I was, I was really impressed. We nearly bombed out both of them. Yeah, but yeah, it it the thirtieth highest ranked movie of all time. Um, it's currently like just around one hundred and fifty. It's currently at one fifty four. It is the only Monty Python movie that is still on the two fifty. The Life of Brian has dropped out since we covered it. Um, it is one of five Terry Gilliam movies that have been on the two fifty. The other four have dropped off. Do you want to do a game where we try and guess which the Ooh. four, which of those are the four? So many games. Yeah. Okay. So many games. I like this. We're just getting it out of the system early. Okay. Luke, so Luke's turn. Is it? Luke's turn to go first. Okay. Yeah. So okay. Brazil definitely. Yes, Brazil was on it. The highest rank of twenty six, sixteen percent retention. Okay, Andrew, to you. Uh, twelve monkeys. Twelve monkeys was on high position of 70 percent retention. Now, things get a little hairy. These next two are perhaps a bit more out there. Luke. I think I have my choice, and I hope you don't steal it. I, well, I was <laughs> going to say 12 Monkeys. Uh, in terms of stuff that would make the list, I'm kind of now at a loss. The, imag- <laughs> the Imaginarium of Dr. Pardonath Philosophy. <laughs> I'm Not going to make an executive... <laughs> Gonna make an executive decision and allow that as the imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. Yes, fuck off. That was on. <laughs> yeah, yes, Why? that was on. Incredibly briefly for one day actually, in September two thousand and nine. To bring it back to IMDb voters doing IMDb things, I can reverse engineer this. This is res- for one day. Yeah, this is residual Heath Ledger sympathy voting. Yes, it is. Yeah, I, see, I, I can't, Dark Knight. I, I, I know. <laughs> see, it all makes sense. Um, it it peaked at one fifty eight and then immediately dropped off, and then Andrew. I'm going to say that I this is a Terry Gilliam movie, right? The Fisher King. Yeah. Andrew. Yes. You are correct. Have, yes. <laughs> this is the best we've ever done at a game. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, <laughs> That was another one percenter, literally only on for one instance of the list. 211 was its highest rank on April 1996. So 
again, speaking to to Luke's argument about like this being a very 250 movie, these being very 250 talents, Brazil, The Fisher King and 12 Monkeys all came in on the first instance of the 250. Uh. The other three dropped out and Monty Python, The Holy Grail is the last one standing of the set. If I if I were to like imagine in my mind the prototypical IMDb vote, but they probably look and act a lot like Terry Killian. <laughs> I, I I can imagine him voting for his own movies. I can imagine him voting for the movies he hasn't finished yet as well. <laughs> and so, Andrew, what about yourself? What is your experience with Monty Python: The Holy Grail? Do you remember when you first saw it? Did you seek it out? Did is it how you discovered Monty Python, or did you discover the movie through Monty Python? Um, so I was, I think, similar to Luke, probably aware of the show Arnhem Movies at first through, um, Faulty Towers and Fish Called Wanda. And then the, was it Fierce Creatures was the follow up? Yes, the sequel to A Fish Called Wanda, yeah. Or the- yeah, which I don't. I I don't know if I did watch that. I think I think I probably did, but it 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 wasn't essential viewing, <laughs> the, the way <laughs> a fish called Wanda was certainly. It's not very good. Um, I love a fish called Wanda, but Fierce Creatures is not great. Yeah, exactly. It, and and I I I watched a fish called Wanda recently, and um and thought it was um it was great. Yeah, and then I would have came to the movies and the TV show. Uh, later, probably watching the movies before I had seen much of the TV show. And um, I think as well, watching The Meaning of Life and I think uh, I think the last one I watched was is it, is it now enough for something completely different? Now something different? completely different, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is just kind of a collection of sketches. A series of sketches. I mean, could you say something similar <laughs> about anyway? And uh, would we, we, well, that that's something we will talk about. When we yeah. talk about this movie. Um, yeah, yeah. So the the, the um, I, I I really liked this movie um, uh, when I kind of first came to it. Um, I think it's per, per, perfectly pitched for someone um, of that age that I would have been at, which is kind of, I guess tweens to teens kind of like you know nine ten that I, I i think it was that age that i was getting into good stuff and um didn't really have a, a, i i i didn't have that thing which some people have which is like um a a group of 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 friends with with good taste or is when I say good taste, it's like interesting taste or something that I might actually kind of, you know, thank them for introducing me to. Or just stuff that I agree with. That didn't happen till secondary school, I don't think. But I was kind of into um some like music and films and that sort of thing that I'm not ashamed of these days. Um, um. about that time. So I'm gonna say about nine, ten, eleven ish. So yeah, so like the, the perfect age for this. I think Luke, as as Luke kind of mentioned, like it, this is a movie that I think 
hit with teenagers. I had a very similar experience. This was around the time we got a DVD player. This is, again, one of those movies I think is being pretty much perfect for DVD. Where I remember the DVD having, like, lots of special features on it. Like, commentaries. Having, like, you know, like the interactive elements of The Matrix, which is another one of those formative DVDs that kind of follow the, yeah, the, the split screen stuff. That was going to be one of my guesses before Luke said comedy. Yeah, The Matrix was one of those, like, you have a DVD player, please enjoy this copy of The Matrix, which will show you all the things DVD can do, but no other DVDs are ever going to bother putting the effort into doing. Um, yeah, the, like- the, the, multi, the, the Hologram one was particularly kind of apropos, because I think they had so many, like, CD-ROMs and like all these kind of interactive Monty Python licensed experiences, <laughs> and the DVD menu is kind of just an extension of that. And again, as like a twelve-year-old, being like, "Wow, the scene selection has this silly little hidden thing in it," you know. And 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 yeah. Again, in terms of that, like being blown away and just like never having seen anything like, like just being so. Uh, bewildered and overwhelmed in a delightful way the the dvd starts with the wrong movie which is which is uh when i watched this on netflix i was disappointed not to get that 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 experience experience. yeah where it 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 opens with a bob monkhouse movie day at the dentist (laughs) black and white comedy but uh, and it goes through the whole opening credits and then you just hear this like record scratch and it's like oh, the right bloody film and like, switch them to holy <laughs> crap uh, but I, and we should note by the way that again a large part of keeping Monty Python's legacy relevant is arguably down to Eric Idle who is the the python who has been like the most curative of the the brand's legacy where he's the one who set up the monty python website in the late 90s which was one of the first examples of an organization or group having that sort of official presence online encouraging people to share clips and to edit clips and to basically meme these things before we knew what a meme was before we were using a meme in that context and it it is kind of interesting that this is a form of comedy that has arguably aged very well because it's immediately suited to something like as as luke said the dvd gag that gag on the dvd is arguably just an extension of the gag that opens the movie in theatrical release in you know 1975 for myself i came to this at what you're gonna go go, go get some bread all right we'll do some context while you get some bread um i came to this uh, again same situation i was a teenager it was one of those movies i'd heard talked about it was my first experience with monty python um, it was a movie that was one of my first experiences with this sort of postmodernism in cinema. Um, it is a movie that, like, I watched, what, 25 years removed from its original context, its original release, and it felt incredibly fresh and exciting to me. And it is something that I still think of as a touchstone. I was surprised when we sat down to watch it how much of this movie I could, as Luke said, almost recite line from line because it had been such a formative part of my teenage years, you know, 25 years after it was released, 25 years from where we are now. Um, just in terms of, of basic context for the well, movie itself. Oh, sorry. I mean, in, in the, it, it, it's, I would say that it's one, one of the most postmodern kind of, you know, movie experiences. But surely, it, it, like with the 90s being what it was, you would have had, some, you it may have had some exposure to it. I mean, would you have seen Scream, for example? or Before this, I don't think I would have seen Scream before Right, this. okay. Um, 
So this this was ground zero for for this was for ground you. zero. I was like twelve or thirteen or whatever age yeah. it was, right? Because I would have been twelve when Scream came out. So this would have been maybe around the same time as Scream, but I didn't see Scream in a cinema. Right. Um. So like, yeah, this for me at that age would have been one of the first things of you can play with these ideas. You can play with the fact that I am watching a film. A film could be aware of me as a viewer and engage with me directly in a way that isn't just a point and click CD game where Gowron from the next generation talks to me. Yes. And goads me. Had that. And <laughs> yeah. the, <laughs> the board encourages game. Encourages you to escape on a shuttle. <laughs> yeah. Um, which was a good, which was always a good idea. Yeah, you 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 got to win the game. You got to survive the game. You, yeah, you you would you would get to the bridge much faster when you don't have to go through like an extra player. <laughs> he would call but, you a worm. Yeah. The upcoming episode about that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When we cycle through the next generation <laughs> movie VHS video game. Yeah. That would be a special bonus feature. Andrew and Darren play the Star Trek Next Generation VHS game with Robert O'Reilly. But Luke, what bread are you cooking? What's what's the what's the cook? Uh, oh, it's just a just a regular sourdough. Uh, okay. I, I've kept a sourdough starting going up for about three years now. So I mostly feed it rye, so it's a, a bit rye there. But then I always bake just with regular strong. I actually got because strong flour is expensive, you guys. Uh, but uh, most recently, I got flour from Aldi, which was decidedly cheaper. So, but I am excited to see uh, if the quality is there. I have to leave my bread now for an hour to cool down. But uh, and is that strong flour from Aldi? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see if it will rise to the occasion. It did. Oh. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Which is, uh, I was worried it wouldn't do, but but it's like a, it's like a glorious, tasty-looking balloon right now. Which is good. Back, back to another type of culture. <laughs> <laughs> Pop. But yes, okay, so Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Obviously, we've talked about the history of the Pythons. We talked with Richard Newby about the life of Brian uh, just a year ago. But basically, obviously... Monty Python's Flying Circus is on the BBC. It is massively popular between 1969 and 1974. As Andrew alluded to, they release a now for something completely different in the early 70s. That is part of a plan to break into the American market, because obviously British television programs don't really air outside of PBS and don't really have any cultural cachet. So they release a theatrical film in the hopes that it will allow them to reach the American audience. Is this before or after um, Hollywood Bowl? Let me go to the fact machine and check. And we're back from the fact machine. Uh, yes, Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl was recorded in September 1980 and was released in 1982. It did also recycle uh, footage from two Monty Python specials, yes, which had aired on German television in 1972, again, as part of that attempt to take the brand international and to reach overseas audiences. Uh, and now for something completely different, as you alluded to, just a collection of sketches that had already been performed on the TV show. And what Cleese noted during test screenings of that was that, like, the audience, they laughed at all the sketches, they were very much on board, but at around 50 minutes into the film, he noticed enthusiasm lacked. And he said, we, we tried shifting the sketches around in case we thought maybe we'd put all the funny stuff early. That didn't change it. Again, at 50, at 50 minutes almost exactly, the laughter dies down and the audience starts to get restless. And so Cleese hit on the idea that the problem was that there was no overarching plot. 
the audience was not invested in what was happening. They were getting kind of tired of the rotation of the sketch show format. So they decided that if they were going to do this again, they were going to want an organizing or ordering principle, in which case, as it gets you to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, the team apparently began drafting this in 1973. When the show wrapped up, they ran into production. Uh, as we probably don't need to tell you, a uh, great deal of difficulty financing this movie. According to a 2021 tweet by Eric Idle, tweets by Eric Idle, by the way, will be a primary source on this podcast, the film was financed by eight investors. Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson, Michael White, The Heartaches, which is a cricket team founded by lyricist Tim Rice, and three record companies, including Charisma Records, the record company that had released Python's early album. Apparently, according to Terry Gilliam, Elton John also chipped in as well. But basically, the only reason that Pink Floyd and Zeppelin financed the film was because they saw it as a good tax write-off, because apparently the top rate of UK income tax was as high as 90% at the time, which is fascinating. But yet, massively, massively, massively difficult shoot, directed by Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam. As we alluded to on the Life of Brian podcast, a lot of contrast, a lot of conflict between the two. Jones was apparently a director who was much more interested in performances and comedy, whereas Gilliam was much more interested in the technical aspects of film production. He wanted it to look like a movie. He wanted to look cinematic. And this obviously caused a great deal of frustration among the two. When we talk about when we get to the later movies, they split the roles so that Jones directs the live action segments and Gilliam manages the animation sections. Um, obviously as well, very tense production for everybody involved. Chapman going through alcoholism at the time. Um, very difficult on set, blacking out, having difficulty remembering his lines. Uh, Cleese at one stage storming off production uh, because he didn't want to be covered in mud. Arguments among the members of the team about the jokes and about focus, about who should get attention, what should be left in, what should be taken out. And yeah, just a very difficult experience for everybody involved. Sorry, Luke. Yeah, just again about the DVD. Uh, I was so fascinated with this movie and so like, you know, when you're at that age, you you, you get hyper obsessed with your with, with your obsessions and you pour over every scrap of information on every kind of additional thing that you can so that was kind of the genesis of me listening to DVD commentaries was <laughs> was Holy Grail and finding the, the the movie so hilarious and silly and and and, and like uh, just then the experience of because it's all separate commentaries for yeah. each Python yeah that was alive at the time they're all individual and just just watching it five or six times <laughs> again with with these different and being like. Why did they all sound so tired and miserable <laughs> and, and 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 detached from 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 this? Don't they know that they're geniuses? But then it's 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 you you really can't unsee that in their eyes in the film. Then when you when you rewatch it, because like there's some comedy films, particularly with kind of groups that have worked together a lot, where it's like oh they had so much fun making it and like oh you can really see they're just. They look so palpably miserable in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like we we we've got a lot recently from Friends. Um, the mm. general consensus is that they all kind of liked each other quite a bit or loved each other. Yeah, and, and um, 
I w- did, w- was Michael Palin the most kind of like mild and least offensive of, of the, in terms of like his comments on 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 the rest of the cast? I, 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 I imagine that he is. And Jones, I think as well. It's Palin and Jones tend to be quite or tended to be quite diplomatic. Jones, I think, was also okay, but I think Jones was more like tact 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 tactfully diplomatic. Yeah, it's all. It's all about what he's not saying. Okay. Yes, <laughs> his commentary was kind of more like jazz, you know. <laughs> whereas, whereas Palin can't help but kind of Palin was a lot of like behind the scenes detail. He can't help but be kind of a documentarian at that at that point in his life, you know. Sure. Uh, Cleese's commentary track was lots of complaining. Yeah. Um, Gilliam's was a lot of complaining. <laughs> <laughs> And and Idol, you just see the sadness in his voice. Why can't everyone get along? Yeah, that that's the, like it's it's fascinating when you read all these features. Like, cause again, we Idol kind of becomes the historian of the Pythons, the one who maintains the legacy. And there are all these interviews for like the New York Times, the LA Times, around say the, all the DVD releases. And it's always like Eric Idol talked for hours about the film, and then we we reached out to John Cleese for comment, and John's like. Well, it's very good for our bank accounts that he's doing this, and uh, I guess someone has to, but I don't really want to talk about it. The, the, the Pythons have been, like, culturally compared to the Beatles for, for, for kind of obvious reasons, and Idol is kind of the ground zero for that, not only because of the Ruddles, but because Idol kind of embodies each Beatles, <laughs> like, perspective on the Beatles <laughs> individually, <laughs> vis-a-vis python he's he he's ringo in the sense of why can't everyone just get along he's george in the sense of why can't my bits ever make it onto the thing <laughs> he's Paul in the sense of like this is i'm the curator of the brand and i have to i have to keep the spirit alive and he's john in the sense of i hate these fuckers so much <laughs> like i mean i think you pointed out as we were recording this it back in the news again because Idol is on Twitter like airing the group's dirty laundry and just being like yeah just to be clear Cleese absolutely bullied Jonesy John Cleese was a terrible human being to work with and he made it deeply uncomfortable for everybody including the python that we all like he's he's like one of the most public faces of bullying as well John Cleese yeah as in like I think in the secondary school when you and I had oh, a class yeah. on bullying. They're, they're, and like why bullying is not cool. The example they gave was? Was Manuel. It, it was um, uh, Sax. Um, Andrew Sax, yeah. It, it, uh, what, what's his first name? Jonathan? Is, I thought it's Andrew, is it? Andrew Sax. I ought to know. <laughs> but yeah, um, you talk to Cleese and Cleese is very scathing in his commentary about this this movie where like he's asked about the film by the LA Times in 2008 and his only response is you know I don't really like it but it was the first time in my life I'd ever made any real money when I did the television series for the last time in 72 my recollection is that I got 4000 pounds for seven and a half months work writing and performing so when holy grail became a big success in america i remember thinking it was like people climbing up ladders outside my house and throwing money in <laughs> uh, there's an interview where he's he's talking to is it at the uh, idaho university uh, and he says basically he called it overrated the ending annoys me most he said he described the closing scenes as boring too long and cliche it ends the way it does because we couldn't think of any other way, Cleese said. It's kind of fascinating how grumpy Cleese is about something that, generally speaking, everybody loves. 
But yeah, basically, the film goes through production. It is very, very difficult. At one point, the National Trust refuses to allow them to film in castles. They arrange to shoot in a number of castles around England and Scotland, and the National Trust writes to them and complains that they don't feel like the Pythons will treat those castles with the respect and deference that they deserve as part of Britain's rich cultural history. Um, so unfortunately, they only had access to a single castle that they end up dressing and redressing to be multiple castles throughout the film. But yeah, very, very difficult production. It is released. It is a massive commercial success. Um, it is hugely influential and hugely successful. It grossed more than any British film exhibited in the US up until 1975. And obviously its legacy stands for itself. In the US in 2011, it was selected as the second best comedy of all time on ABC behind Airplane. Not Airplane 2, Airplane. <laughs> in the UK, Total Film Magazine in 2000 ranked it the fifth greatest comedy film of all time. And a comedy poll on Channel 4 in 2006 ranked it sixth. This is a film that has a tremendous legacy. And I guess this is a segue into asking the three questions. So, Luke, do you think Monty Python and the Holy Grail belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? See, this is where it gets, it gets interesting now. Because I still, I still like, I loved this movie. I still enjoyed this movie when I rewatched it here. And it is unquestionably it's it, it's got a great legacy it's kind of it's kind of beloved but <laughs> i don't know that i would put this on the list or a list of the best movies of all time in i think because the, in terms of this creative group and and their work together and and and, and all that I think that Life of Brian is probably the the realization of what this is attempting to to of what what of what they what they started here they kind of perfected with Life of Brian. This is in the ways that I really like. This is so kind of rough and ramshackle and and kind of thrown together. Uh, so I think it's. It's culturally relevant. It it is a it's a germ, a genesis for a lot of, of comedy to, to, to come. It is the kind of a Velvet Underground kind of kind of, kind of <laughs> thing, more so than the Beatles, where 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 the where the influence kind of threads through like comedy through up into the nineties and two thousands. I'm gonna talk a bit of that later. But as a film like this, this is not really a film. <laughs> this is still them working through. This is a transition point between their television work and them later as 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 kind of like movie stars and as, as individual artists and, and and you know Gilliam as the director and Jones and, and and stuff like that. This is very much a transition point, and I feel I think it feels transitionary, even though I think it's really really good. Can I ask you then, like, is the fact that this is perhaps closer to the TV show an argument for it as much as against it? Where, like, The Life of Brian is a more conventional film, but this is perhaps more singular. I think, like, where you talk about, like, police saying, oh, the, the, now for something completely different doesn't work because people start flagging and there's no plot and stuff like that. And yeah, like, we need a, a, a plot structure and, and all this kind of stuff. They're not fully. Uh, 
committed to or 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 experienced with that idea in this movie yeah which you know that ending i mean i don't we agree with cleese about the ending but that comes about in part of them being like we've done how do you end a movie they don't know yet (laughs) you know (laughs) And also, we've had enough difficulty shooting this movie. We just wanted to end. And so um, they're like, "Well, yeah." And like, so we're irreverent, and it doesn't really matter. And what's the the kind of stupidest thing is the funniest thing. And also, we have no money, and that's the ending they end up. Whereas, again, to 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 compare, like Life of Brian is also an irreverent, stupid <laughs> ending, but it's an ending. <laughs> and it it's like, how do you end a sketch as well? It's like the big problem with it with a sketch show, which it is the 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 notion behind the title of "I think you should leave," and it, it's something that they they do a lot in Monty Python, and then later on in like Mister Show, they play with that idea of like, yeah, how do you end a sketch? And and see that's yeah, they, that's the thing with Monty Python as well. That was their. That was their USP, you know. Yeah, was <laughs> oh we 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 don't end our sketches. We whereas when you're at a movie, it's like well people have to leave the theater. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just zoom in on something, and then that thing becomes the focus of the next sketch. Becomes an animated um, yeah. <laughs> character, you know. It and it walks off the end, and and then like it it pulls down its pants and does a fart. Not to be too reductive, <laughs> and like it's 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 funny because I wouldn't I wouldn't change that about this movie. It kind of has no, no beginning either, and and that's part of what made it feel so like different and revelatory for me is that it's just this like black tar heroin kind of comedy <laughs> exposure to, to to but 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 yeah, I definitely think that in terms of them as 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 filmmakers and artists and stuff, this is them in the middle of kind of a refining of a process yeah for i i i'd agree with luke on that i think it's very influential and if that earns it a place on the on the list then fair enough but life of brian is a far superior movie because it's more of a movie less a collection of sketches it has a a it i think it has a premise which is interesting and which the filmmakers are interested in versus um, this, which I think it's not really anything subversive either to the extent that, like, like who is this going to annoy aside from the National Trust and some <laughs> Daily Mail <laughs> <laughs> readers maybe? Um, but they, they it, it's and the British film censor. There was a lot of back and forth over this movie with the censor. I, there's, there's so very little though. Like the, the, the <laughs> you know, I, I know it was like 1975, and maybe they just expected it to be worse than it was. I don't know, but they, they, it's I, 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 I think it's fairly mild, and 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 I, I, um, okay. Well, here, here's here's the here's the itemized list of the censor's criticisms as of August fifth, nineteen seventy four. You need to do six things to secure the rating that you want. One, lose as many shits as possible. Two, take Jesus Christ out if possible. Three, lose I fart in your general direction. Four, lose the oral sex with oral sex underlined. Five, lose oh fuck off. And finally, lose we may cast a nets out of your testicles. 
And it's great because, like, the, the producer... What ra- what rating were they looking for? Uh, they were looking for um, a 14s, appropriate for 14s and over. Okay. Um, I do love that, like, Mark Farstetter, the producer's counteroffer is, I'd like to get back to the censor and agree to lose the shits, take out the odd Jesus Christ, and lose oh fuck off, but retain I fart in your general direction, cast the off your testicles, and oral sex, and ask him for the rating on that basis. I like the prid quo quo negotiation. <laughs> I I think like the this movie is punk in ways that endear it but also kind of exposes limitations. Punk in the sense of them not really being like great at their instruments and it's what makes them kind of like cooler, you know? Totally. Yeah. But yeah, it's not the um it's this isn't the apogee of, of 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 Python in 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 movies, we've already covered that movie, I think. The life of Brian. and it's not really a movie. The 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 kind of the the quests that the title gives away is only kind of revealed in scene eight, and it's not really paid off, um, especially not to spoil it, yeah. compelling or um, central even Im, Im, important. It's just it it it's it's essentially a, it's a series of sketches. And by the way, I, I I think some of the sketches aren't really that good, as well. So where where whereas with um, and now for something completely different, they can put in um, the best stuff they know already works. Yeah, stuff they exactly. This is kind of like what what will we do here? And sometimes it's it's kind of the the I I I think kind of um, uh, shaky. It feels haphazard. Um, yeah, there's some stuff which is excellent and like like the 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 problem I had with this movie last night is that I didn't actually laugh that much, and I I I I, I had a lot of fondness for this movie. Um, now some of it uh, um, did make me laugh. But certainly it's not a movie that's going to make you cry. You're never going to care about any of the um, characters. The here. Knights of the Round Table or Arthur or... No. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, so it, does, it, doesn't, it, do, it doesn't get what, what, what it's about um, across very well. It, it's not a movie in the sense of it's, it, 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 it feels like it's just a, a kind of like a sketch delivery mechanism. I don't think the sketches are the best. Um, the 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 premise isn't very well conceived or delivered. The characters aren't really there. Yeah, no, there there's there. Unfortunately, there's there's just too many reasons for me why it doesn't belong to be in 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 the list. And you kind of put it there because uh, the IMDb is what it is, and and also because of its influence on later films. But you can look you can look at Life of Brian. And say like, oh yeah, and there was a, there, were, there were other movies before that, and here's kind of like how it came about. The first one was just a series of sketches. Second one was more like a story, but they hadn't really figured it out how to tell stories. Maybe. Um. So that's uh, that's two no's there. I I'm going to be controversial. This is going to be a hot one. I'm going to say yes. I I think, and this is where I get really controversial. I would argue this probably has more place on the two fifty than Life of Brian does. And I'm not going to. We'll answer the second question separately. But I think that, like, if you're looking at the Holy Grail and you're trying to make sense of it, it is that lack of a story that is central to it. I mean, you asked, what is this irreverent about? I think it is irreverent about several things, and I'm sure we'll get into those in the spoiler zone. But primarily, 
what I think it is irreverent about is the idea of a film. Sure. It is a movie that is constantly reminding you that it is a film and constantly mocking the idea of a film and constantly drawing your attention to the conventions of filmmaking. Not to get too spoilery, but like you repeatedly have say... Ca- like, is that courageous or lazy, though, is the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, like, like, I... I, 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 I you know, and and I think it's kind of both. I think that the, that ties to your point about Pug very well, Andrew. I think <laughs> yeah. that there is with that kind of artistry and that kind of approach, there is a tension in the. And again, I think it's why it, it's 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 also part of why it appeals to like adolescent boys so much. Is that there is this tension <laughs> yes. of uh, I don't even really want to make a movie. Uh, I don't. I don't even. I don't <laughs> yeah. even want to know how to play guitar. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, exactly. How much of this is contempt for the audience, and how much of it is laziness, and how much of it is actually doing something for the sake of doing it? You know, I. I don't think th- that's the thing. I don't necessarily think that matters in the sense of I think the product or the output speaks for itself, and I think that yeah, I think this is obviously postmodernism had existed for you know decades at this point. Obviously, you know, there were movies that were aware that they were movies before. There were movies that were conversant with the audience before. You have, like, the whole range of movies in the 1950s that were about taking you through movie production, talking directly to the audience. Well, arguably, you have, like, like, like Don Quixote and then, like, um, the Tristram Shandy and... Yeah, like, yeah, but a lot of those are novels, you know, they're, like, that's a different art form. I think, like, when you get to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you have this movie that is massively commercially successful, widely beloved, incredibly influential, and what it is doing is it is essentially... Don Quixote is not a movie. No, I know, that's... <laughs> yeah, a... As Terry Gilliam knows. Yeah. Um, eventually it would be a movie. Um, I still have not seen Lost in La Mancha. I don't know if I'm missing anything. But, like, this movie is a film, like, as... And again, maybe it's just watching it as a teenager, maybe it just being a formative influence. But it is... It's a movie that really breaks down the expectations that you have for a movie. And yes, part of that is, as you said, the fact that the premise is most loosely arranged and the fact that it is, you know, just a framing device on which they can hang these sketches. But it is a movie that's constantly asking you to engage with it, not as a story, but as a piece of film, as... You know, something that is the work of people, you know, making it from the fact that like the opening credits gags that draw attention to the credits as part of the movie. The fact that, you know, you have the intersection of this documentary in it, not to get spoilery. The fact that you have at various points characters literally break the fourth wall. You have Arthur comment on the performance style of Tim. What an eccentric performance. You have a character break the fourth wall, turn to the audience and point out that the sketch is, you know, something that they thought was a bit risque and maybe a little bit sexist, but it's working much better in execution than we demanded. At which point the other characters in the movie say, get on with it and continue with it. I honestly do kind of think that the way that this movie breaks the fourth wall, you know, not necessarily novel, not radical, and I don't think it invented the wheel, but I think doing that and being popular and being accessible and, to my money, being successful, make an argument for it, where its irreverence, its punkish sensibility is directed towards the medium itself. I would argue that maybe makes it more worthy of a place on this list than Life of Brian, which is maybe a superior film. It's maybe a better told story. It's, But I think it is a more conventional film than this is. Um, and I think maybe that would be an argument that I would make personally if I were assembling a list 
with something towards you know a, a larger cultural importance. I guess, but that's that's my yeah. I I guess like my feeling is that there there are good reasons for these conventions. <laughs> it's kind of like I know now I have I have a child. <laughs> Um, I'm watching Yellowstone. You have become more conservative <laughs> become... in your old age. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Narrative conventions exist just, for a reason. Just like John, please. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I just think something needs to be done about this woke mind virus. That's all. And you saw a GB News podcast after this recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah I, I mean, like, I, and I would also make the argument that, look, if you're gonna put a Python movie on the 250, and, you know, arguably, you know, the question of whether or not a Python movie deserves to be on the 250, maybe a movie like the like a Python movie, maybe a movie that reflects this style of comedy, maybe a movie that reflects the kind of influence that these comedians have had on, you know, pop culture in general, Whatever the, the excuse or whatever the argument you're making, I think if you're advancing that argument, you, you advance the strongest version of it. And I think this is much more representative of what the Pythons are and what their legacy is than Life of Brian is. In that I think, you know, you, you could make the argument that Life of Brian is more quotable, it's more iconic, it's more memorable, people remember a lot more of it. But in terms of, like, actual content and style, when people think about Monty Python, when they think about this style of comedy, it's it's more... Holy Grail and Life of Brian, they think about. So that would be my argument, but it seems I'm in the minority in this podcast, uh, certainly compared to you two guys. So, Luke, what about your personal 250? Your own personal 250 favourite movies of all time. Does Monty Python and the Holy Grail rank on that list? Okay. Uh, a complete contradiction to what I said like three minutes ago, I think. Yes, I think I would put this on my auto, which I think is maybe... One of the only times I've said that on this podcast. <laughs> and again, the Moon for Love was a definite one. But other than that, I think I usually end up saying no. Uh, or I don't know how lists work. Or, or, or the very concept of a list. <laughs> Just dis disparaging the premise of the podcast. <laughs> it's uh, every, every, every guest. <laughs> My list is all just like references to Swedish mooses and llamas. <laughs> um, yeah, like I think it's, it's this movie's too uh, encoded in my DNA as a human being for me to not include it on my own personal list. I really can't overemphasize just the. I have to think, I have to try and, and kind of pull back my memory. Was it about once a week that I was watching this movie, or was it about once a day? <laughs> it may have fallen somewhere in between the two. Uh, in sticks class in school for like English writing assignments, I would just recreate bits from this movie. Uh, it was just, I thought about it all the time. I poured over, yeah, every 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 section of that DVD. The I might have watched it in other languages at one point. Because like when you're twelve and you 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 see like uh, you when you're twelve, you see these kind of bricks of who you are with like music and with comedy and, 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 and with, you know, movies and with everything else you see, these, you're, you're, you're kind of forming your own identity, but you don't do that kind of deliberately. You just kind of see things and, and it awakens something inside you. And, you know, here I am, uh, 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 you know, white male nerd in his thirties recording a podcast. The genesis of where I am right at this very moment <laughs> can be traced in part back to Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Uh, so, 
Yeah, I think a I, series I think of I, excellent decisions. <laughs> <have brought you. laughs> oh, I think I have to put it on on my own list for that reason. And when I when I rewatched it, you know, I think like Andrew, I wasn't laughing a whole lot. But that's only because I watched this movie so much. Sure. That even when I was like, by the time I was thirteen, I was like, yeah, this is just what I see when I close my eyes. So <laughs> what are they? That that being said, there were a few things that I had forgotten about because I haven't seen this in. In years, uh, there were a few things that caught me off guard and did make me laugh. But everything else, it's like I know what they're going to say before they say it, so uh, it doesn't kind of kind of grab you in that same way. Um, I think it becomes not this makes me laugh, but <laughs> but like it, this it, conjures the what, memory of me laughing. This, well, like this is what I find funny. <laughs> 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 this is the kind of thing that makes me laugh. Um. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? No, I mean, it, it probably would have been if I the, if I hadn't kind of went back and watched it. And it would be, be because it it did, it it, it it was kind of in my mind. And, and I think still it, it retains some of that kind of uh, legacy, but that it didn't stand up on a rewatch. And there were, there were, there were similar to Luke, Actually, sorry. They maybe in contrast to Luke, there, there, there were perhaps more more parts of this movie that I had kind of forgotten. We spoke recently about generations and just knowing like every minute of that movie, and and nothing really being surprising at all about it. It's just all there already. Watching this this time around, there was some of it that I that I didn't remember. And didn't find funny, and then there were other bits that I didn't remember and did find funny. Opening credits, for example, um, I, I I really enjoyed. But yeah, no, no, un, unfortunately, no, it didn't kind of stand up, which is disappointing. But but um, you know, it could be one of those Princess Mononoke things where you just need to watch it an even <laughs> number of times. You, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and for myself, I think, yes. I mean, I do prefer uh, The Life of Brian. I think The Life of Brian is a much better, more satisfying movie-going experience, and I would probably prefer it over The Holy Grail. I would feel like, if I'm going to stick on a movie, I will probably pick The Life of Brian. Um, but I do think Holy Grail is phenomenal. I, I rewatched it, and I fell halfway between the two of you where I remembered so much of it, but I had forgotten little bits of it, and then I remembered that I had forgotten those bits, and I was like, wow, that's quite clever how layered it is, how dense this is in terms of jokes that it's making, and how clever it is in what it's doing. So yeah, no, this absolutely for me, as Luke said, a formative experience, a large part of my DNA, a large part of who I am and how I think about movies and my relationship to movies stems from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and obviously hugely influential uh, in terms of comedy uh, this is cited it, as an influence. Sorry, go ahead there, Andrew. It accounts for your whole kind of like um, punk kind of persona. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I yeah. am. I'm a rebel. I don't have a cause. I'm rebelling against the medium <laughs> of podcasting is what I'm doing, Andrew. Uh, mostly by just, Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, there is that thing of like, when you're a kid and you are a kid who follows the rules, it's always good to have a friend who doesn't, who you can live vicariously through. And so you tend to... <laughs> Like this, I think you have pointed. Some, some someday I'm going to have a podcast that doesn't follow the the, the three questions podcast structure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the regular three questions, spoiler zone, and blow then, people's yeah. minds. Yeah, uh, no, I mean like we're going you... <laughs> to start with recommendations <laughs> and work our way backwards. Well, hey, there may be something that's going to come like that soon, but I have to figure out if the guests are game for it. 
uh, but yeah, no, like Holy Grail is one of those things where it is that anarchic energy is like infectious and joyous and beautiful. And I find myself kind of swept up in it. And it's, it's kind of ironic. By the way, Darren, are you saying that in a few weeks we're going to make our Tenet podcast that we released a few years ago? <laughs> yeah, to, to mark the re-release of Tenet, we are going to record the podcast that you guys listened to uh, three years ago. Um, but yeah, no, this this would be on my own personal 250. It would be lower than Life of Brian, but it would be on there and it would be fairly formative. And then finally, Luke, if listeners have not seen Monty Python The Holy Grail, which is available to stream on Netflix now as part of the Monty Python collection, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Uh, it's hard to say because I feel like you can maybe watch some of the best bits. <laughs> on youtube online. separately um, and then and then if you haven't seen it you're gonna be like oh that's why that annoying guy in college that i avoided said those <laughs> things that he said <laughs> he was quoting he kept, this it all he kept saying things now. were a flesh wound yeah <laughs> i think again i think the public comparison is is very apt in that as, as much of a section as i still have for monty python uh, as time goes on, these things are so much less cool than they felt at, 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 the, at the time. Uh, nerds have ruined them as they do all things. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I think this is. I, I think if you haven't seen this, then you might you have a chance of having that same kind of experience that I had as a as a twelve year old, where you've just not seen anything like this. And I think seeing. It's a thing that you've never seen before in that way that is so radically different. It's always an experience worth going through. So yeah, go for it. All right. And Andrew, what about yourself? I'm going to uh, be controversial and agree with Luke. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I think you have a chance to come to this for the first time and to be affected uh, the way we were, especially if you are of a certain age, but, but yeah. maybe it's not that dependent on that. But if... um. For any of our younger listeners, I mean, we're sorry, <laughs> but, but also you, you you might enjoy this. Do we have younger listeners? Do we know? We we know demographically. We do skew very male, um, which is right. interesting, as as one might expect for a podcast with two white guys talking about movies. Uh, we do, and it's generally people our age. It's people around our age, maybe a little bit younger. Um, so it is somewhere okay. between twenty four and thirty four. Tends to be your sweet spot. Um. Millennials and so Zoomers. We, we don't re- yeah. Well, I don't know if we have like young Zoomers. We don't really have that many. Like, because we don't really have many of the eighteen twenty four. A lot we're... of old, um, <laughs> old Zoomers, uh, old Millennials, old Millennials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, old uh, Zoomers, some old Boomers. Some, yeah. I well, we're we're really growing that Yellowstone audience with Andrew continues to watch Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah, we're homeowners. <laughs> One of us is as a wife and kids. Not saying who, um, but uh, yeah, I would I would wholeheartedly recommend. I think it is accessible. I think it's easy to watch. I do think yeah, I think the point you make is an interesting one. Where I wonder about like the film's legacy. Where for us it was tied to home media. It was tied to DVD. In the streaming age, this seems less suited to that. It seems harder to discover. I wonder how young people are finding things like the Holy Grail and the Life of Brian or whatever. Like it now, Monty Python is all on YouTube. I think yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I think it's more likely that people will discover it kind of backwards. I do feel like Monty Python is at like a low point in terms of like cultural relevance. relevance. Yeah. And, and, it, and even though Monty Python, much like Wu-Tang Clan, are for the children, 
I don't know that kids are kind of getting into my family's day. <laughs> Uh, which is like I think there's there's reasons for that, and yet in some ways I think Python would be like Python would kill on TikTok because well, the, the format sketch only the sketch barely lasts for the for for, for through the to the, the runtime of its own uh, sketch. <laughs> you know, it would, be, it would be perfect for TikTok in theory, and yet I don't see kids kind of embracing Python in the way that they would have in the '90s and and, and early 2000s. Maybe maybe it's like maybe it'll come back into fashion, you know. Maybe everything moves in cycles, but yeah, you're right. Like this is an era of sketch show comedy. Like again, you have like Amy Schumer, you've got Key and Peele, you've got like I think you should leave. Sketch comedy is is huge because for the reasons you mentioned, it is easy to distribute online. Dave Chappelle, of yeah, course. It, but it's easy to distribute online. You don't need any context for it. You can share a one minute clip, and it just people get the jokes. I think though, and this is this is not this is not me complaining about the children or anything like that. But uh, I think let that... the record show. Luke is shaking his fist at the sky as he but says like, this. This is like seventies stuff that then you know I got into in the early two thousands and stuff like that. And again, like my parents weren't Python heads, but it was like that kind of here's something old that we know and appreciate and that you you might like as well. I feel like kids don't really do that at this current moment in time, where younger people don't have as much of an interest generally and on balance about stuff like kind of came before the hand-me-downs the hand-me-downs yeah it, it, it's not as much of a thing now i think if a, if a, really? if a kid yeah I, I i i don't think it's as much of a thing to i think i think it's not put in front of them as much because sure you know this was a dvd that i was had <laughs> literally you know, things, issued. things things like you know blackadder like uh, Only Fools and Horses and, and all this kind of stuff. I was watching that on TV. I was watching reruns, you know. So many of the like, old movies that I would have watched would have been like... Flicking through the channels. Yeah. On RTE on a Saturday night kind of thing. And, 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 and you kind of gain your own momentum. And yeah, like when you're 12 and 13, if those are the, the kind of building blocks that are put in front of you, you then may become a, a, a kid that's like, oh... I heard that this movie from the 70s is really good. I know I want to watch this. And then I enjoyed that. So I want to watch this movie that the person was in. Uh, and you kind of start forming yourself in that way. Whereas like a kid now that is into, I think you should leave, just like watches that I think you should leave over and over, and over again. And, 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 and more power to them. But at this exact moment in time, I, I do think that there's less of that kind of um, rediscovery of old stuff. Because like streaming services don't have anything that's older than the 2000s and they, they remake anything that's 20 years old. Uh, you know, there's no, kids aren't, the kids don't watch stuff on TV. They don't watch reruns. You know, everything's shoved into a, a channel made for old people. Thing. Uh, there's, there's less of that kind of. I guess they're kind of hidden. I seem like like a lot of the stuff is there, like the that, uh, um, for like iPad kids and um, uh, Disney Plus kids. It's kind of like the it's 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 sort of the whole the homepage. You have to know what it is to find it. You have to look for it. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 and like like if 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 their parent is kind of holding their hands, they're like, did you know that Tinkerbell? is in a movie called Peter Pan. And then there's a warning at the start. <laughs> I th- I think I think you're getting at like the the one of the big issues with modern media consumption or restoration or the passing of knowledge from one generation to the other, which is this question of curation, right? Where 
Luke mentions he was literally given a copy of this movie. I think you mentioned being kind of given a copy of this movie. I mentioned being directed to a copy of this movie. And, like, that's one of the functions of physical media in general, the video store in particular. Like, you go into or you used to go into a video store, which for younger listeners is a building full of movies that you would take away, rent, and bring back at the end of the weekend. (laughs) Uh, But you go in, and the walls are stacked with the DVDs, so you can see them there. You can physically touch the DVDs, you can turn them over, you can read the summary, you can see the critical pull quotes. Like, obviously, you know, there's a tendency to make room for the new releases. There were two shelves full of new releases every week there. But, like, a lot of the stuff that was there was otherwise kind of curated. It was content that was there because either people had already watched it, or because staff felt strongly about it. You would have staff pick there you would have if you if you knew the video store you could go up to the counter and say hey uh i have you know kids at home is this going to be appropriate uh i like this kind of movie is is this like that kind of movie and the video store clerk could actually answer your questions like there's a reason that quentin tarantino is this kind of romantic figure in film culture this video store nerd who goes on to become a filmmaker using his encyclopedic knowledge of, of cinema and you lose that when you go to a streaming service where you you don't have that personal recommendation index. You know, I know you hypothetically have the algorithm, but that's not exactly how it works. And like the the structuring of streaming services, even if you get past the, the issue that you see right now, which is the debate about whether streaming services like Disney Plus or Max or whatever should be, you know, publishers or publishing houses rather than libraries, where people are watching, you know, older shows on Disney+. Plus. The most popular shows on Disney+, Plus tend to be, like, Grey's Anatomy or NCIS or whatever, not Loki, not Echo, not even WandaVision, which raises questions about, like, why are you spending so much money promoting these brands? But you have... You log on to Disney+, Plus and immediately your front screen is, like, the Marvel collection, the X-Men collection. Yeah. Uh, you go on to HBO, it's the DCU collection, it's the MonsterVerse collection. Right. Everything is kind of grouped together in a sense of, like, these are related. You go on to Disney+, Plus, you have, like, the Simpsons collection, which includes Futurama and all this sort of stuff as well, the movie. And it's very hard to find stuff being thrown at you just randomly. I mean, hell, like... This movie here, if you're looking at it on Netflix, you're you're quite unlikely to see it recommended to you on the first row of, of your screen. And even if you do, there's a lot of scrolling down and sideways and it gets quite repetitive and it's not really as exciting as going to a video store, picking up a, a title, turning it around and reading the quotes on it. You know, it's a thumbnail after a thumbnail after a thumbnail. And you are more likely to find this in the Monty Python collection alongside The Flying Circus, now for something completely different, The Meaning of Life and Life of Brian, which means... You have to know that this is there. Yeah. You have to already know what Monty Python is in order to kind of tune into it or discover it or find it. And I, I, I do honestly think this is an underrated problem with, with the way that modern media is structured and shared. I, I think it's a systemic issue. I, like Luke, I don't blame the kids, but I, I do think that this is a, is a, is a factor, you know? Well, it's, it, it, it is a consequence of the way things are on the internet. Again... That, like, early 2000s period, I would have been going online and going to, like, silly little websites and, like, you know, kind of flash videos and, and, and all this kind of wide kind of range stuff that, that would have been kind of Python-esque, if not related to Python, you know, stuff like that. Uh, whereas now you're funneled onto the same three or four websites. So you might have that similar kind of humor that might be the kind of TikTok videos you're shown are kind of Python-esque. silly and irreverent in that kind of way, but there is no 
because it's it's algorithmically driven, there is no curated kind of person going, oh, do you know what you would love is Monty Python. This. And it's like, how, how do you find it if somebody's not kind of putting it there in, in front of you? You only find what you have easy access to. I guess it's 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 like when Darren and I were college age, what you, 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 you it was the early kind of days of uh, YouTube and um, other kind of video sites like that where you would kind of, you know, go through stuff like um, college humor and funny or die around you know that, yeah. and funny or die exactly. So the, the, and that 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 wasn't curated by a um, a grown up. That was kind of algorithmic, like TikTok is. But you you tend more to spend time on a landing page rather than in in an application. I think at that time it was like you were kind of you we were thrust onto the internet, which is this, this like mad overarching kind of place, and you would kind of wander and find your own way through it. You know, you would. You would go onto YouTube and you would type in whatever came into your head because nothing like YouTube existed before. <laughs> so like a like an ape being presented with a bone and kind of using it to smash stuff, you're like, oh, I can search for this thing that just came into my head or this thing. And you're, you're yeah, you're kind of, it, whereas now it's like you are kept in that place and stuff is brought to you <laughs> constantly. Yeah. Well, it, the, the social media has changed now where there pe- people are creating less and like consuming more. As in that, 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 that it was like Bebo was, you know, your top eight friends and you look at like what's their pinned video um, and, and and that sort of thing. This is some real web archaeology here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, whereas now kind of like TikTok, I think, um, and Instagram as well is, is and I think even, even the way Facebook has gone. Because 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 there's nothing but like the most boring people you know still using still Facebook posting uh, things on Facebook. Um, what you see when you go on Facebook is not user generated content. It's all kind of um, uh, uh, you know closer to traditional media, although like um, and and that TikTok and Instagram is like that 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 a lot of it is kind of sponsored or that you're looking at influencers rather than friends. Uh, I mean just if we want to chart like the the cultural cachet of the pythons like it's worth pointing to spam a lot as like one of the great legacies of the holy grail which is Eric Idle's kind of like offshoot musical version of the holy grail where it opened in 2005 and it made 162 million dollars in its first 3 years keeping in mind that most Broadway shows lose massive amounts of money. Um, this is something that obviously, like, Hollywood jumped on and were like, we want to make a film adaptation. But, like, they, you can tell that it loses steam around the middle of the 2010s, where, like, Fox greenlight a version in May 2018. It gets kind of lost in the Disney merger. Paramount say, I guess maybe we'll look at optioning it at some time around 2019, 2020. And Idol confirms in, like, 2021 that the project is dead. Like, this is the time where we're rooting through IP, we're looking for things that are familiar that we can recycle, we're doing cinematic adaptations of stage musicals, you know, like In the Heights, like Hamilton, like, you know, we're doing West Side Story again, but Spamalot is is something that's just like, nah, the, nobody, nobody really wants to see a film version of this. It is to speak to Luke's idea of, like, the spent cultural power of the Pythons, it is kind of interesting where we are in the cycle. But again, it, 
it could potentially come back into vogue. Fucking Sam Mendes, maybe we'll do individual <laughs> Python biopics. Um... Idol, <laughs> Chapman, a Gilliam movie that goes into development hell and then never comes out. <laughs> Everyone falls out over it. Yeah. Um, a, a Cleese movie that just complains about all the other movies and resents the fact that it has to be a movie. Um, yeah. But anyway, with that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. So, Luke, what is Monty Python and the Holy Grail about for you? Uh, so, Colonel Predfoot of Predfoot Industries aims to entice a couple of dentists to advertise Dream, <laughs> which is a revolutionary kind of toothpaste. But he knows that if the dentists learn that they're part of an advertising campaign, they'll be struck off. So his cousin, who's the director of it, no. <laughs> uh, Do you want us to insert a record scratch there? Oh, you, you, you never have to ask Darren to insert a record scratch. Wait, what? So I guess you're wondering how I got into this podcast. <laughs> uh, that that could be the, the swear filter. Although I suppose knee is probably the well, best. Well, we don't use the swear filter anymore. We're, 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 yeah. we're for over 14s now, Luke. We yeah, can save. I, yeah. I will test that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's nudity as well. I mean, if you like, you don't have to. Um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is about a bunch of uh, sketch comedians coming together and being like, making a movie. That's easy. And then finding that actually <laughs> movies are hard to make uh, <laughs> and not, not much fun. <laughs> it, it, it's about the quest for the Holy Grail and how actually, uh, and so far as as it is about something, and I don't think this movie is about anything. I think it's I think it's too uh, irreverent for that. But everything ends up being about something, whether it wants to or not. Uh, obviously, Monty Python is like really influential, and and again, it's that kind of like comedians that you'd like like this kind of thing. And one of the things I think is interesting, particularly where culturally some of the other Pythons have found themselves uh, politically and and and, and stuff like that. It, like South Park catches a lot of flack these days as being this kind of genesis for this uh, kind of both smoke, sides are equally bad. Online. Everything yeah, this sucks. kind of belief that believing in stuff is stupid and and kind of nothing matters and everyone is equally equally stupid and stuff like that. And South Park was hugely influenced by Last Planet. Like really, the, the, those two guys are in many ways the kind of the the. The followers on from from Monty Python's kind of style of, of, of comedy and their, their kind of ethos and that kind of uh, the mix of animation and music and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it, the, even the genesis of of South Park, like you know, handing around a VHS, kind of is, is is very Monty Python, kind of in 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 a time that's like twenty five years or or, or or less after Monty Python. Yeah, totally. And like, I think I think that there are a lot of good points in that kind of accusation that's that's kind of leveled at South Park now, but nothing originates from one exact moment in time. Everything is threaded to back through somewhere else. And Monty Python is definitely uh, also a, a, a kind of comedic institution that operates from this belief that caring about things is stupid and trying is stupid and everyone is equally wrong. And like, uh, one of the things that, that really kind of struck me watching this, and it does come up in Life of Brian more so, is that like 
oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. <laughs> Hell, I'm being repressed. It's this idea that, like, well, being a king and being in charge is stupid and ridiculous, but anything else, any alternative and, 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 and trying is also equally stupid and, 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 and kind of worthy of mockery and, and stuff like that. And there is this kind of streak in, in, in a lot of Python stuff, which is, you know, contempt for the common man, which I do find in, in, in the case of, of, of Cleese in particular has kind of curdled kind of more and more to the, to, to, to the forefront. Yeah. It's this, well, this kind we, of idea was, that like, the people in charge deserve to be mocked, but I mean, the, the people uh, at the, at the bottom of the food chain are in, deserve to be mocked as well. Cause they're rubbish. Look at the state of them. They're all dirty. <laughs> This is what happens you, when comedians go to private school to come there. Well, it, it's it's it, it's what happens if um, if the people you admire kind of like live long enough. It's it's it. it we spoke about punk and like John John Lydon's a very like Brexit voter kind of uh, a guy, and and similarly like you know, I'm, I mean less punk, but. Um, you know, music that uh, most people liked unashamedly would like Ben Mars and Eric Clapton, that sort of thing. But they, 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 they and and when to, just being disappointed with somebody, um, I guess growing up in that. But it's, it is the, 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 it is like we talked about before the spoiler zone, where this kind of idea that like I don't I don't care I don't care about anything is you know uh, at its core kind of spiritually impossible. <laughs> And, you know, these are great comedians and they're talented people and they've, they've made me laugh many times over the years. But, like, on a spiritual and conceptual level, are the Pythons any different from the Bowling Bin Club? I don't know that they are, really. Well, they, I mean, like, we should, we point out, we talked about it before, everybody... They're very different, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I think Jones and Palin are probably very different from Cleese. I think Palin does care about things. Um, and I think Jones does as well, which we'll maybe talk when we get into notes. But yeah, you're right. Like, these are people who who met at college. They have a very kind of irreverent view. I, I honestly, I do think, to the credit of the Holy Grail, I think most of its contempt is directed upwards. I think, like, its contempt for Arthur, particularly Arthur as a protagonist, is more acceptable in that kind of comedic punching up sort of way. Where I think, like, yes, the the peasant complaining about look at the violence inherent in the system. Where he talks about like an I was it an anarcho socialist commune, anarcho syndicalist, anarcho yeah. But like, yes, that is a gag. But I I think you know the movie is not necessarily as cynical towards him as it is towards Arthur. Like I think his point about some old bint in a in a lake distributing swords not being an equitable system of government is. Oh, not oh. mocking him. It's mocking this notion of British exceptionalism and this idea of like the the lineage of kings. I think it is doing that as well. But I think this it, that scene that sketch is really of a piece with the the big fight between all the factions in in, in Life of Bryant. Yeah, uh, which kind of the, the people's the root, front. The, yeah. the root of that joke is that like yeah, the, the left can't organize. Well, like no one can organize, and and, and there's nothing to, worth organizing over. <laughs> this is the 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 inevitable result i'd like yeah i think this movie does kind of make a uh obviously a, a mockery of of arthur and just the very idea of british hero which makes a lot of sense what a, what a what a ridiculous notion 
Uh, I mean, like, the, the the third and fourth line of the movie, like, Arthur introduces himself. It is I, Arthur, son of Arthur Pendragon, from the castle of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. And the immediate response to that is pull the other one. Yeah, yeah. But, like, every person that uh, every person that they meet in this film, and again, just because it is a collection of sketches, the only thing that happens in a scene is the characters meet. Arthur. <laughs> like, silly characters, and, and then something silly happens. But like everyone they meet, it's like there's the, the, that aside of like, what a silly person, what a strange person, what a, what a, what a, what an eccentric performance. <laughs> Which is, you know, every time he does that, it makes me laugh. But yeah, it is like, you know, the kind of like, well, I am ridiculous, but the only thing more ridiculous than me is everyone that I meet. Which I think is a very Cleese and chap kind of thing, <laughs> you know. But But yeah, I mean, this movie is about nothing, consciously so, but Again, nothing can, in the end, be about nothing, which is the problem that they found. They had to end (laughs) this movie. (laughs) But, like, the the extent to which it is about something, it's kind of like, who cares, I feel like. Like, how subversive is it to say, like, wouldn't it be funny if, like, um, King Arthur was was actually an an oath? Like, I'm sure there are some people who are getting annoyed about that, but aren't he really? You know, like... Arthur's kind of one of those funny things culturally for the British. So harmless. Because it's like, it's kind of nothing. Like, British people don't care about the King Arthur mythos. It kind of doesn't have any... They care about their actual royal family. (laughs) That would have been the subversive thing to do. Yeah. To do like a Richard III or, you know, something something kind of Shakespearean kind of a thing. Uh, I mean... it's. I I would argue like you you put this in the context of pop culture at the time where like there is it's this... a very Darren kind of idea of of of, of you know like the, the the this is the 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 you know this is very subversive because it's getting <laughs> us the uh, the origin myth of of, <laughs> of, 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 of of this particular nation the, or country yeah yeah this kind of um uh. Well, what do you call him, Joseph? Um, uh, Campbell's face. Uh, Joe, uh, sorry, Campbell. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But yeah. like two, two, two things on that. First of all, I think like just generally culturally, people do care about that sort of stuff. I mean, that's why the National Trust like didn't let them use the castle. I don't think it was because they were worried the Pythons were going to physically damage these monuments of history. I think they were worried about how the castles would be portrayed on screen because that actually mattered to them, the cultural legacy of it. But I mean, even if you look at like pop culture outside of that, you've got like, you know, you have the entire high fantasy genre, you have LARPing, you've got this obsession with feudalism, with medieval times. I mean, the, the weekend that this is coming out, this episode's coming out, you will have had Shogun launch on FX and Disney Plus internationally. You'll have Dune 2 in cinemas. Those are both like feudalistic depictions of culture and they kind of linger in the popular consciousness. I mean, the Lord the Rings movies, Game of Thrones, all that sort of stuff. There is this fascination with the era. Hell, I think Warner Brothers have tried to launch two separate King Arthur franchises in the past 20 years, despite the fact that audiences don't seem to want them. They linger. By the way, one of the things in this movie that kind of actually stuck with me that was funnier this time watching it is the bit in the middle of the movie where the knights all get together and then split up and go on separate adventures and then come back together at the end. That kind of remind like, it was something that seems funnier now because you know some Warner Brothers executive has had a document or a diagram 
like that on a whiteboard for their shared King Arthur verse or whatever it is. But yeah, you have like the 2004 King Arthur, you have King Arthur and Legend of the Sword by Guy Ritchie that was supposed to launch an entire shared universe or franchise. Like, people do care about this stuff, and I think there is, a, like, a broader cultural fascination or fixation on it where you have this argument at the moment that, like, international politics are moving away from, like, the governed by nation-states to a sort of a, what I believe they're calling a neo-feudalism, where it's it's smaller interests, it's not even countries, it's corporations, it's entities, it's individuals, it's autocrats. We're moving away from this idea of democracy as a functioning or, like, the guiding light in Western politics. You have this idea of techno-feudalism, which is, is driven by tech companies that are very much obsessed with this idea of, like, a feudal or a vassal state, a vassal entity. You have the idea of, like, moving away from state involvement in things like the moon landing, but even things like the, the colonization of the metaverse. Like, and, and all that stuff is, you know, it's not explicitly feudalistic, but you also look at, like, Mark Zuckerberg in pop culture as this nerd who is obsessed with Game of Thrones. And yeah, I, I, I know that we have in recent years kind of embraced this idea that, you know, it's not all romantic, Game of Thrones, everybody's covered in shit. There are, you know, all these sexual assaults, brutal violence. There's all these characters getting brutally maimed and disfigured. It, it's not a pleasant place to live, but it's also kind of cool because you, you get to ride dragons, you know, in Dune. You get to ride giant sandworms. Here, you get to clap a bunch of coconuts together, and I do think there is some value in deflating that idea in general of the medieval fantasy in popular consciousness. And I do think, like, it has aged reasonably well. I think it is still relevant today in the same way that, like, making comments about the West is still relevant today in American pop culture. And and also, like, I, I don't think, you know, it being King Arthur instead of, like, Richard III is, is a big issue, in, in part because, well, first of all, Life of Brian isn't Life of Jesus, and it still makes its points, it still, its points are still valid. But I think also, like, if you look at where pop culture was in 1975, like, when this movie comes out, you know, I, I, I think there's a very good reason to look at Arthurian legend specifically, and in particular tied to, like, the moment. Yeah. You look at, like, pop culture in the 60s, there's this resurgent interest in Arthur and Camelot. So you have, like... Excalibur. Yeah, well, Excalibur doesn't happen until 1981. Um, but you yeah. have, like, Camelot the Musical, which opens in 1960, becomes associated with the Kennedy administration. Like, a large part after Kennedy dies, um, Jacqueline kind of speaking about how the Kennedy White House was Camelot. You have, in 1963, you have the release of The Sword and the Stone, which is an adaptation, Disney's adaptation of the T.H. White story, like The Once and Future King. You've got Lancelot and Guinevere, British film from 1963. You've got Siege of the Saxons, another British film from 1963. You've got Arthur the Squ- and the Square Knights of the Round Table, which is in Australia, running from 1966 to 1968. The demon character Etrigan the Eighth Demon Great in 1972. You've Arthur... <laughs> do, do you want more? Five more? Um, Arthur of the Britons, an ITV series, which ran from 1972 through through 1973. You've got Lancelot du Lac, which is Lancelot the Lake. That's Robert Bresson's French film from 1974. And you've Percival Le Galo, which is a French film from 1978. So there is this resurgent interest in Arthurian myth and legend that is bubbling through. They're spamming a lot of Camelot. I oh. Um, but so I do think that like engaging with that is interesting. And I do think, like, yeah, if you want to take a broader big pop culture look at things like what is happening in britain and andrew's like yeah this is this is the very darren argument what is happening in britain in the early 1970s 
it's the movement of Britain into the European community. They join in 1973, and a large part of like the very wonky cultural legal discussion around that is the fact that Britain doesn't have a constitution, and Britain doesn't really have a concept of human rights tied into it. You know, you can point to the Magna Carta, for example, but like you don't have a Bill of Rights that most countries at this point in history, particularly following the two world wars, have in their laws. There's a big argument that takes place, you know, in the House of Lords, the House of Commons, about like incorporating the European Convention in Human Rights into law. You have the idea of Labour proposing in 1974, the year before this, that you instill the idea of human rights into British law. And a large part of the barrier to that is, to get back to Luke's argument, the idea that if you're suggesting that every citizen in the United Kingdom is equal to one another, you're completely undermining this idea of royal bloodline and royal lineage and the role of a king. And I do think that, you know, you look at what's happening in America in the 1970s with the Western, and you're having this deconstructionist approach, this mockery of the Western icon. You've got like Peck and Paul, you've got Eastwood, you've got all this stuff going on that is playing with this foundational national myth. And I do think that, you know, Holy Grail is maybe not as overtly, maybe not as cynically, maybe not as brutally, maybe not as pointedly, but it is reducing King Arthur to an oaf. And as you say, mocking the very idea of not just King Arthur himself or not just the king himself, but the idea of the mythic quest, the mythic journey, the story structure, the beginning, middle and end, the quest narrative as a whole. I think there is something there. Or okay. Uh, I don't know if that how I don't know how intentional that. No, no, I am not because no. like these guys aren't satirists. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it is uh even even as compared to kind of the American kind of movies that that came in the wake of this stuff like Kentucky Fried Movie and at Airplane and, and and stuff like that. Those are those are kind of coming from these like smarter than their college kids watching disaster like Airplane for example these kind of smug comedians <laughs> watching something and being like, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> I'm making a movie as a response to this. So I, I, I guess if, you know, if, if, if Arthur's stuff was kind of more culturally relevant at the time, certainly there would be kind of elements of that. And with all this kind of stuff going on, it can't help but if it's running through your brain, it's good. It is going to come out, you know, but this is them going, oh, we need to make a movie with a plot. And it's just kind of the shell of a plot that they've thrown onto it. And then they've continued as normal with the, with their process at that time of let's all go off separately now and write sketches in our style and then come together. And, and so you have these very different kinds of sketches coming from different comedic voices, very loosely <laughs> together. Um, and like as a kid where, yeah, again, I wouldn't have seen a movie like this that it isn't really structured like a movie and when you're a kid things are much more tightly like disney stuff and that they're yeah. much more tightly kind of they much more linearly that. hit the yeah. three acts kind of structure around the point where it's like uh and then the place then the the the, the knights all separate <laughs> and then they got back together uh, and then they got back together like you, you you do kind of have this and we ate the extras off screen because the budget couldn't stretch to it <laughs> yeah you do kind of as a kid have this underlying like what why why is the plot not happening (laughs) I think like the the fact that this is like the year after Blazing uh, Saddles Saddles. and Blazing Saddles is a movie that does what this movie is maybe not trying to do 
but if you're being generous it is kind of um subconsciously what it's trying to do and i think blazing saddles is more effective at that hmm. and also funnier and more of a story i think it's more of a story i like certainly it's a much more conventionally structured narrative yeah but it also speaks a lot to 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 the time in which it, it it is set, and and to those kind of origin myths of of the of the society in which it's placed. But that that that's coming from a voice like Mel Brooks being like, "I know how to make a movie. I know how to kind of bring yeah, this stuff together." Sure. Whereas this is a bunch of guys being like, uh, 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 unintentionally, I think, kind of assuming like, "Well, it's still shooting something on a camera," <laughs> and not accounting for. <laughs> Having to go on location in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there's an ex, there's an extent to which like a, a British comedy in America gets a lot of kind of love and praise, and sometimes it's for its kind of rough and ready, uh, uh, quality, and then Americans do a version of it which is more Convention. conventional, but like also the office. works better. The office, like is, the office, exactly. The, the archive. If you, like, if you like, go back and watch. The, the Gervais the British office it's very kind of nasty there yeah that, I, I always imagine that like the 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 uh, the character we're rooting for I don't think his name is Jim it's um it, it's uh Tim sorry Tim in the UK one. is it Tim, Tim yeah I think it is Tim in the British one. He he's not a good guy at all. <laughs> I think that's just Martin Freeman though. I think he can't the, the energy come yeah. across as a bit of an arsehole. Yeah, yeah, but it, 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 and and then you create this kind of American office, which is where where you care about like every single person, and it, it, there is really no kind of. Um, I mean, you 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 can say that it fails in some way in not being like subversive enough, but but that it's um, what's well, just doing different. It's just doing something. It just different. knows what it's doing. Okay. I guess. All and, right, and and but but and and that the the but that. The Americans initially kind of like you admire something like Faulty Towers because it's only like twelve episodes <laughs> or something, or you admire something like the the original British Office because it's um it it's kind of like it's very cringy and it's not you know it's not doing what I guess American sitcoms are doing, and you admire Monty Python because. It's kind of experimenting with the whole form and kind of like farshing in the general direction of, of like narrative and filmmaking. There is definitely something to be said for the the nastiness of irreverence, which uh, again is a thing I think comes comes through then later in stuff like South Park. But it's definitely one of the things that I think Americans found so liberating and enjoyable about that kind of British comedy. It's like, and look, I wouldn't want to live in, in a world as created by by john cleese you know and, sure. and there is that kind of mean streak to 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 some of these things but it is funny when when basil Fawlty kicks manuel <laughs> and like in monty python and the holy grail like it, it is ramshackle and it isn't kind of thematic there it, it's not it's deliberately not thematic and there is no story and there is no one to root for and all that kind of stuff but uh, and like yeah the sketches kind of run out of steam before they end mm. But when somebody just whips their head around and goes, "Look, you stupid bastard," it makes yeah. me laugh. Like, and it, it, that 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 side of it, I think there is something to be said for. They're they're not kind of bound by 
Right. This is how a, a kind of dialogue should go in 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 this. They kind of they kind of break free from that. And, and again, from the from the very beginning, like even in the credits, they're like, "Well, we don't want to do credits." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stupid and sad. And it, yeah, and it, it's like very jokes funny about for mooses, them, like... and then the mariachi band, <laughs> which we which I found hilarious this time around. The thing is, though, that the the, the people they inspire are good at telling stories, like Trey Parker. Is very um, good at telling stories, but it's very, it's all very kind of structured. Like Dan Harmon is very well. He has a story structure. Yeah, that's yeah. where I think this is better as kind of a, a genesis than as its own oh. yeah. kind of thing. Because even even with the guys in this, like uh, like Fish Called Wanda, is a better you know sure. movie, a better story than it's, it's a more that. coherent narrative, and yeah. even Life of Brian, you know, and stuff like that. Like, can, can can I just like to make the strongest possible argument for this movie, and for like you know maybe not writing it off completely? Like Terry Jones, the the credited director on this, along with Gilliam, obviously these Monty Python members, they're all Oxford, they're all Cambridge educated. You know, they're scholars. They 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 have a background in this sort of stuff. And, you know, obviously Palin, known for his work as a, a documentarian in, in the years that follow. But, like, Terry Jones was fascinated by medieval history. He published his first book uh, on the era in 1980, Chaucer's Night, The Portrait of a Medieval Mercenary. But he's, you know, he's written television shows. He's made documentaries. He won an Emmy in 2004 for Terry Jones's Medieval Lives. He collaborated, you know, with several other historians on Who Murdered Chaucer. He produced the series in 2006, Terry Jones's Barbarians as well. Like, and, and throughout Jones's work, there is a consistent thematic through line in his conception of the medieval era, which is this idea that the peasants were not savages and the nobles were not noble. So, you know, for example, in, in Chaucer's Knight, the portrait of a medieval mercenary, he argued that, like, the concept of Geoffrey Chaucer's knight as the epitome of Christian chivalry ignored the ugly truth. The knight was a mercenary who worked for authoritarians that brutally oppressed ordinary people. You know, as Matthew Rosa at Salons pointed out, that's an argument that is not dissimilar to the scene in which a peasant argues for democracy in the Holy Grail. He's also argued that, like, the, the Renaissance was overrated because the nobility got to look back and say that the real, the peak of civilization was an era before peasants dared to imagine that they could speak up. He's talked about, like, the Peasants' Rebellion and said how so much of the portrayal of the peasants rising up as an ignorant, smelly, chaotic class was just propaganda propagated by those in power. I, I honestly do think that this is something that at least informs a lot of what is happening in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, this perspective is threaded through the film. And I know obviously, you know, as he pointed out, Jones is not the only author working on it. Obviously, you've got Cleese, you've got Chapman as well. But I, I do think that you look at the film and you can see that bleed through, that perspective, that argument, that engagement with the gap between what Jones saw as the historical reality of brutish knights and oppressed peasants and, and what you see in the film itself. And I mean, look, it's worth shouting out for all that this is an absurd spoof and obviously very broad, very cartoonish. It It's immaculately researched in places. It contains like a number of the jokes here are funnier the more you know about history. Like take, take for example, like the sequence with Sir Bedivere and the Witch, which is, is patently absurd. It's a wonderful joke. The kind of tortured logic at, at play there. 
But like that is not that far removed from the kind of logic that was actually employed where you have like Stacey Schiff's book, The Witches, where she offers a, a list of what New Englanders in the late 1600s believed showed some woman to be a witch. The witch bore a mark on her body indicating her unnatural combat with the spirits that engaged her. These could be blue or red, raised or inverted. They might resemble a nipple. They could be a flea bite. They came and they went. Essentially, any dark blemish on the skin qualified. Like, yeah, this is this is all very well observed. It's very rooted in the particulars and the specifics of it. Uh, an example I think of is the use of the French, the recurring French castle, which, you know, is fundamentally absurd, the idea of the French being in, in what is apparently medieval Britain. But the fact is that so much of what we know as the Arthurian canon, Arthurian myth and legend, doesn't actually originate in England. It comes from French. It's translated from French. The French have been those who preserved and who kept the Arthurian legend alive. So you have the irony of the British having to import what is essentially their national well, it's, myth. It's the language of 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 the of the English yep. course Fair. as well. Uh, but but I think even say something like say that the recurring jokes about Lancelot's sexuality, where like. When he rescues Sir Galahad the Pure from Castle Anthrax, and and Galahad says, "I bet you're gay," or you have the moment where like he tries to rescue uh, Prince Herbert and like mistakes Prince Herbert for a princess locked in a in a high castle, and you you could point to those and you could say, "Well, it's 1975. That's that's just a bit of homophobic gay panic." And I wouldn't push back too strongly against that, but I do also think that like. It exists in the context of a larger discussion that was taking place in academia around Lancelot's sexuality at this moment in time, where you have a, a whole bunch of historians, medieval scholars, who argue that the only way to make sense of Lancelot's actions in the Arthurian legends is to read him as repressed, homosexually attracted to Arthur, and that everything else he does, including his affair with Guinevere, flows through an understanding of that central dynamic and that is obviously you know enriched by th white's presentation of the character where you know there's certain subtext there which critics have read as white dealing with his own repressed homosexuality his own impulses which in his own diaries he felt ashamed of and guilty about and then simmering through the once and future king kind of in shaping and informing the presentation of lancelot and like I like that even those throwaway lines, those throwaway gags that could easily be casual, forgettable, you know, would be lazy in most other comedies, here hint at an awareness of a broader context, a bigger idea, a wider milieu, you know, the, the sense in what these characters are, what they represent, and, and how they are perceived, not just in popular consciousness in general, which I think is part of it, but also specifically in the realm of the experts who know this area inside and out. I, I, I honestly yeah. do think the film should be given a bit of credit in, in that regard at the very least. Sure, sure. I mean, the reason... The reason that nerds love this movie is because it was made by fucking nerds. I'm not fair. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't dispute that. And like, I think you know, again, if Terry Jones had a carte blanche and 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 budget and stuff, this would retain elements of what it is, but would be, you know, a, a different and more kind of co coherent kind of thing. And like, just by the nature of having a group of say. Six and a half <laughs> Ish. kind of people Ish. with different comedic sensibilities kind of pushing and pulling with no money and, and a very tight schedule. It It is a, 
it is a, a mark of their talent that they end up with something as good as this is, uh, and as as influential and stuff like this. This is, but but uh, this is kind of one thread on, on on a journey for each of them to to what I think to to them would represent a a, a more realized whole kind of thing. Uh, yeah, like I think I think it's. It's funny, like Jones would, I think, I'm sure loves to do a very kind of deep dive, satirical and comedic interpretation of, of uh, Arthurian legend and, and ancient British culture or a slack thereof. Uh, but then they step out into the real world, the Pythons, and they realize that uh, the cost of having <laughs> costumes, uh, period piece costumes for longer than two and a half minutes. <laughs> Is, is is not what they realize uh, but that's part of what I find kind of charming about this in a way is the fact that you're seeing the same castle just at night kind of three or four different times and they're just wandering through different parts of the same bar it's not a castle it's a model uh, and like just the, the that kind of ramshackle nature of it with these kind of legendary talents is kind of a fun thing to, to see and in comparison to Again, with that kind of music comparison to people like the Beatles, like the Beatles were giving were given everything that they wanted in order to make the best thing that they could together, which they then got to do until they hit a creative breaking point. Whereas these guys were kind of just throwing stuff together for a long time and seeing what's worked, and they made kind of amazing stuff from that. But like when you're seeing like extras wearing helmets so that you don't know that it's not John Cleese when John Cleese is somebody else in the scene and stuff like that. It is very rough and ready and kind of kind of thrown together, which I think works for it. But uh, again, isn't fully what they ideally would have had it be. Okay. All right, and 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 again, like small thing I love is the idea of like Arthur being introduced. There's the moment where he passes. You have that wonderful sketch with the peasant, whereas I'm not dead yet. Um, I feel like I could go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone. But at the end of that sketch, you have the, who's that? Must be a king. How'd you know he's not covered in shit? But I love that towards the end of the movie, Arthur, as Luke said, probably a result of the fact that you only have one costume and you can't afford to properly dry clean it. He's, in, he's covered by filth by the time you get to the end of the movie, which I think is quite nice in terms well, of... Well, he, he he gets like a, um, a, a bucket of shit thrown over him. Yeah. <laughs> a number of times, which, yeah. Which, which, which is just a kind of... Um, in case you don't get it, I suppose. Uh, I, those those DVD commentaries, a lot of it was complaining about the cold and the rain of of Scotland. Yeah, uh, which is, I think, <laughs> kind of um, karmic in a way because one one of, one of Python's most frequent targets comedically was Scotland as a cold and miserable and wet place that no one would ever want to go so um, Scotland has its revenge and and uh, particularly they made a lot of hay out of you know the Scots being you know cheap back in the end to fight uh, them which is actually quite funny and again a, a lovely historical inside joke Tim the summoner is Scottish because apparently most Arthurian scholars believe that Merlin was a Celt so that is apparently the joke there. Um, all right. Is there anything else you want to talk about with Monty Python, the Holy Grail, we have not discussed already? So, Luke, anything in your notes, anything you want to talk about, anything you want to discuss? Um, I think I, one of the things I was thinking when I was rewatching it was that, you know, I've mentioned on these podcasts before that I was a very cowardly child and that, you know, I didn't like violence and, and, and stuff like that. Um, 
I would go into like chart busters and see like the kind of not even gory, but like implicitly gory to the point of goofiness, like VHS covers of horror movies. And they would frighten me. <laughs> and like, I couldn't watch them and stuff like that. Like, uh, but I kind of was thinking the other day in a funny kind of way, the kind of goofy red paint yeah, over the top, silly violence in this movie, I think was the first kind of like step of me kind of going, Oh, it's, it's make believe. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and it's kind of fun. Like, look, it's red. It's like a paint. That's fun. So the next time that you see that in a horror movie, you're like, Oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> like I love seeing shitty blood in horror movies from the seventies now. Um, and yeah, like I loved, uh, the, the the really shocking violence of the the rabbit you know kind of <laughs> ripping people's yes. heads off and stuff like that i thought that was great I, and made me laugh just like it did you know 20 years ago or whatever it, it it's incredible because like it's hilarious it's a great <laughs> um effect it? because of its jankiness yeah but it also works as a um scene in a horror movie yeah it's, it's it's really very very good and very funny and very like scary and and, and, and um so it, it 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 it's good in so many levels um and we we should mention like you mentioned the kind of the dirtiness the jankiness the bloodiness that was something that gilliam really pushed for um as a director because he said he was like he's a big fan of pasolini that dirty realistic look where you could almost smell his movies add a little smoke and filth to a scene and it starts to look more artistic. What works is that it all looks so authentic, though not necessarily accurate, but it's juxtaposed with such downright silliness. We ruined that period for a lot of directors. Bresson's very serious Lancelot du Lac came out after us. In Paris, the audience couldn't stop giggling. Gilliam is such a necessary evil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, again, the, the, the kind of, the kind of atom smashing of these kind of irrelevant, silly little boys and this insufferable, pretentious cunt. Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's you need it because that's the that's the secret sauce that makes these things. But well, fuck me, shut up. <laughs> like, but uh, you because you need that just juxtaposition with them running out of money and not knowing how to end the movie <laughs> and Michael Palin being like, it should just end. That's that's shit and therefore funny. <laughs> and Palin is right and Cleese is wrong. As just, in most things. Um but yes. The movie just ending is hilarious. But but like and and it is worth noting this is not the first example of a medieval movie to go dirty. Um obviously like you had Roman Polanski's Macbeth from a couple of years beforehand. But it still does, again, that that feels the kind of subversiveness of it is the dirt and the filth of it. And when you compare it to those period epics that I, I kind of mentioned earlier, those Arthurian examples of British cinema. Um, but Andrew, anything you want to say? Anything jumping out at you? Um, I liked the kind of Bergman reference at the beginning. I I think there there is something wonderfully, uh, just starting at the beginning, there's something wonderfully silly with the coconuts and the way they they, they they clap along. And throughout the movie, when you see people pretending to be horses, it's it's always funny. It's Cleese's Lancelot is the one who really does it, where he hops over. <laughs> he makes a big deal of hopping over, which is incredible. <laughs> okay, Cleese is a tremendous uh, physical comedian. Yeah. You know, like, like there, 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 there is something funny about him anyway because of his like ludicrous height 
Yeah. And um it, he he he's he he's very good at being this kind of like um person who must be taken seriously. You know. Um he's kind of really he maps perfectly in terms of the UK US kind of divide comedically. He really is a one for one to Chevy Chase. Sure. Uh yes. Just like tall person who is a really like funny comedian in terms of his his use of language and stuff like that, but who personally believes <laughs> that the only thing that is funny is falling over, <laughs> like, and who is again a miserable bastard that can't get along with anybody. Ruins the lives of everyone around him. Who breaks people? Isn't that the argument? Working with Chevy Chase will just break you. Uh, John Carpenter was never the same. Uh, it's kind of actually amazing that they never worked together to 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 my knowledge. They probably would have like that would bring down a studio. That would be yeah, enough to it, end a studio. It probably would they just like atomize together and like destroy each other. Dude, um, can I can I say a joke that I really enjoyed was the gorilla hand on, on the the book of the film. I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> the hand uh, that slaps the hand that's turning the pages that's Maggie Weston that's Terry Gilliam's wife. The gorilla hand that slaps her away that is Terry Gilliam. And I love the aptly named Sir Not Appearing in this movie. That is Michael Palin's four-year-old at the time son. Um, so it is a family, family affair. Yeah, see, I, I, I think to, to, to your point, Aaron, about this being, you know, kind of a pistic of the very concept of making a movie, uh, all the best uh, kind of bits of that are where they're actually not drawing attention to it and not really dwelling on it. Again, to the point of like, you know, Punk rock is at its best when it's just doing what it's doing as opposed to drawing attention to what it's doing. Uh, and like, yeah, the, the the bits that I really like are that kind of, it's a transitional scene, but let's just throw in a stupid gag there as well. <laughs> or in the, in the middle of the, because like the, a, a version of that in their eyes is the the musical sequence, the, the Camelot. The Camelot. Song, yeah. number, which is, uh, and look, I've never seen Spamalot, but like, <laughs> That's not that funny, you know. <laughs> but I, I quite like the gag of like the unrhymable, the unsingable rhymes. Sure, um, sure, but like the defa to gabble, the bit within that where it just cuts to for like one frame, yeah, uh, a chained chain to a wall, clapping. <laughs> that I thought was hilarious. And again, it's like it's one second and it doesn't call attention to it. Uh, and then yeah, at the very end, I'm serious. The the let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. <laughs> You know, or um, or the credits, you know, or 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 that just sudden kind of ending. It's kind of those bits, as opposed to kind of each each sketch, like looking you dead in the eye, being like, "This idea is silly." <laughs> Welcome to scene twenty-four. Is the thing about a lot of Monty Python is that it, it's more quotable than it is for like like as it is something we have these days is kind of like Anchorman. And and some of the yes. other kind of um, uh, Will Ferrell esque kind of Adam McKay era. Exactly. Yeah. Like Talladega Nights didn't really kind of. I don't feel like it had too much of an impact, but for some people, there are, there are lines in that movie. Hey, Christopher Nolan loves that movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And but but that that there are lines in that movie that are very quotable for its kind of acolytes, you know, and and it's gas because like that's the stuff that I think became the python brand was the kind of it's it's just like paths this like secret code kind of password stuff of yeah yeah, of of quoting these bits to each other uh but like watching the the nice you say knee scene the other day i was like this is 
why is this funny? And I exactly. fucking loved that so much as a 12 year old because it's silly noises and, 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 and a funny voice and stuff like that. And I still appreciate silly voices and funny noises now as a grown up, certainly. But that scene in particular, I was like, this is not good. Whereas in comparison, like the Lancelot's attack on the castle, fuck me, it's so good. It's, so it's brilliant. Good. Just him running. <laughs> The same issue. <laughs> again, the, it's it. No, but the when he's running up to the castle and they keep cutting back from the guys watching him. <laughs> he's in the distance. Running. He's in the distance. He's and, in, again, and then suddenly the, he's there. Yeah. But 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 the again the the funny thing about that it is like a similar kind of uh, thing to like where John Mulaney his his bit about playing it's not unusual <laughs> over or what's new pussycat over and over again and then it's not unusual once just to shake it up when he's running towards the castle Cleese, it is the same footage every time except one in the middle <laughs> where he's just a tiny bit closer <laughs> and it's just so much funnier and you know him him running around and stabbing people is funny but it's the bit where he goes back and whacks the flowers <laughs> on the wall that caught me off guard and it made me bust to go laughing much more than any catchphrase would I think there there are some overly long, unfunny um, scenes. I, I think the Nazi Saini is a kind of thing where if you are young and you're seeing it for the first time, it's impressive. But even I, I, I think I've forgotten like exactly what it is because you you know the Nazi Saini, but you forget kind of eki 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 patang zu boing, uh, which is silly and it's kind of not, not, you know it it's but the the I guess the scene that I thought of most is the, the the whole kind of like make sure he doesn't leave scene where it's just like kind of over and over sort of the same joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. They don't quite guess us. Um, and I, I'm, I'm like, this isn't kind of, this isn't really worth the amount of time the that time they're giving you're spending to it. On. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because like in theory that pays off and then when Lancelot comes sure. up the stairs and he goes now, uh, and then he stabs him. But you like you're just layering so many jokes on top of jokes, <laughs> on top of jokes. At that point, that that kind of passes by, and you it's, it's like it kind of the payoff is kind of lost in the over egging, which I think is something that's definitely influenced me comedically because I think uh, dragging kind of over egging, yeah, dragging out the kind of push left to me is the funniest thing in the world, and I think it's one of those things that has definitely uh, embedded in my DNA comedically from Monty Python for better or worse, which is the funniest thing to do really is not to make another person laugh, but to irritate them. <laughs> and like uh, Arthur kind of being uh, broken down and kind of parodied and all this stuff is less funny than just Graham Chapman being irritated because that's where Chapman's strengths as a, as a, as a performer lied where, where, where as being that, that, that irritated straight man, you know? And he apparently only ended up being Arthur because all the other actors wanted to wear wigs. Basically, it was a process of elimination. Everyone else was like, there's no way we can play Arthur and be these do these other kind of sketch show roles that we wanted to do. Chapman's definitely a very interesting figure because I think just by the nature of, you know, his his, his struggles. He's and the, the sort of John Lennon. In, in... Yeah, but it, it's kind of, he's not mythologized as such, but he is. Yeah, and, and he is kind of separate from that. You know, he he unfortunately didn't get to have that kind of second life that all the 
the the other uh pythons did as 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 performers you know but it kind of mm-hmm. it means that he's kind of frozen in 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 place specifically as a python and that kind of oh he was the straight man and all this kind of stuff is that starred as sean too brightly sort of thing about him hmm. yeah and the fact that he's the lead of the, the the first two of the three movies yeah so he ends up being the most central python who as you said is also doesn't have a career outside the pythons because of his tragic passing which is kind of funny when you're you're sort of getting into python it's like because you don't think of him as much because he's not around in the sense that kind of um uh, palin palin idol idol. please to a lesser extent jones but um i I think like like graham chapman is maybe the one that you forget and of course, we are forgetting uh, Terry Gilliam, but he—he—he's not yeah. one of the main stars. He's arguably his own thing. Yeah, yeah. He's also arguably his own brand as well. Sure. In that, like, Cleese is still a comedian, but Gilliam is uh, like a filmmaker onto himself. And uh, to be, I think Chapman is the best one in this uh, by 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 a good way. Like things like again to me, like him going into that kind of a uh, misty-eyed rendition of the the Lady in the Lake and stuff, and then just snapping like that's what. <laughs> <laughs> That really cuts to the heart of what you're saying, Darren, about, you know, that kind of piss-taking of uh, the entire structure of British civilization. Where he just, he wanders over and proceeds to bollocks, yeah, to bollocks Michael Palin because he just can't stand the the mildest form of criticism. Him being like, look, you stupid bastard, you don't know why I was, like, just wanting to, wanting to leave a scene. That's, that's kind of what Chapman was, was best at, you know? And again, him, him kind of going in response to the bluster and the mysticism of Tim, uh, what an eccentric performance! <laughs> I, think, <laughs> a... I, I also love the the recurring joke, and it I I hadn't noticed before rewatching for this, him being unable to count is set up before they do the holy hand grenade, um, like before they bring the holy hand grenade down, he's like, it killed five of our men, three, three, yep, that's right. I do like the recurring gag where Arthur's just for no reason keeps going one, two, five. Again, nonsense, which I kind of love. No, I, I was I, I was going to say um, for me, it's kind of the the sort of typical obvious choice of um, it's Keith and it's Palin, and I think that the 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 weaker performances are probably Idle and Jones, and um, for me and. I mean, Gilliam is barely in it. Yeah. Um, which, which, which is, which is the same with like a lot of his small appearances in the show. Yeah. Um, you know, he'll 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 be the kind of uh, maniacal um, inquisitor, creepy little weirdo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, creepy yeah. little weirdo. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, apart from apart from God, which is a it's a is a good sketch. All the animated stuff in this is fucking rubbish. <laughs> The animation was so often in, in Python, just a way to keep that fucker happy. And, uh, <laughs> it's the most extraneous part of the whole of the but whole it, process. It's the transitions which they're not very good at as well. Mm. I I love the the weak hearted animator, the joke where like they get chased by the monster which dies because the animator has a heart attack. I I thought that anyway. That's another example. That's of... where the movies. That's a that's at the point where the movies like oh, just we're still going, Harry. <laughs> And the yeah. choice to have an intermission 10 minutes from the end as well, which I, as an adult, I admire a great deal more than I did as a kid. <laughs> so as a kid, I was like, I don't know what an intermission is. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel like um, us as children, Luke, knew exactly what an intermission was. 
<laughs> because like they they were appearing all the time in in cinema. It's so that pe- it's so that pe- people could come in and change our ashtrays and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then the another gag I quite like since we're running through gags I liked I like the the Lancelot Herbert stuff where the the assumption is that Herbert is a Disney princess where like Lancelot gets the letter and assumes he's saving a princess and is shocked when he's saving a prince and the bit where Herbert is like repeatedly threatening to break into Disney-esque song and dance because again that is what we associate with like a medieval setting knights and kings and princes and castles and the movie just refuses to let him sing which I I I, that's a recurring gag I, again I quite like and I think maybe plays into the idea of the subversion of the notion of um, this kind of medieval setting again Ca- Ca- Camelot would have been on their minds at the time and again Andrew as far as yes. Eric Idle being the, the among the weaker ones in this you clearly see <laughs> down the line Idle's vision was that clearly this needed more silly sauce <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, he's right. By the way, I think like he 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 he's, he he has made some of the most money of, of, of any. Yeah, <laughs> um, and like it also, there's a Ruttles uh, kind of reference here where Neil Zins plays the leader of Robin's Minstrels, uh, which I quite like as well. Um, it's funny. I think it uh, there's I, Idol. Yeah, he has he has kept the the Python legacy alive, and he says he's has made no money from doing it, but he hasn't, <laughs> I think it's more so that he hasn't kept any money through, through, <laughs> through doing it due to mismanagement of Terry Gilliam's idiot son or, 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 or whatever. But it, it is one of those things where like, please can complain as much as he wants about how kind of, uh, throw away and capitalist and, and cash in these exercises are, but that's only because the, the private school boy, <laughs> miserable fucker is, hesitant to admit how much he wants to make money which he did more so better in more quantities (laughs) elsewhere (laughs) and didn't complain too much about it and you know i don't think he was complaining about 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 kind of residual checks and stuff when uh faulty terror was on the air for 50 years it's a funny thing in the in the kind of british upper class psyche where like making money is kind of vulgar or well, talking like, about making money as well. Yeah, we just you? have all of this land and stuff, and we make it passively. <laughs> because you, know? you might, yeah. you might, you might inadvertently reveal that you had money already, you know, uh, and uh, or that you are, you know, you that the the stiff upper lip thing means that you can't ever reveal that you're struggling either, because that might reveal something about you. It is not only because of the the woke children and how nothing is as good these days as it was when <laughs> police was in his 30s that makes him appear on GB news now complaining about everything it's also the fact that he is dying and irrelevant and sad and, <laughs> and he needs the money for for doing these interview appearances and stuff and so he debases himself but it can't be allowed to be him debasing himself he still has to not care you know it's these woke 16 to 19 and a half year um, old um, kids, um, I guess. They, that's the kind of this living in Castle Anthrax. The seventies, seventiesness of us, um, I guess. Yes. was was yeah. It's like yeah, this, um, all 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 of the kind of um, rock and roll and kind of um, a, a, a lot of comedy comedy people at the time. All they had these like sixteen year old girlfriends. And that's perfectly normal. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, 
I, I guess did going back to what you said about violence earlier on, the the the, the dismemberment of the Black Knight um is very funny and memorable and also the obligatory Robocop reference. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, and to be fair, when uh, the mysterious man from scene 24 throws people off the bridge, he does say, can you fly, Bobby? Uh, <laughs> yes, beforehand yeah. as well. Um, lo- love the joke of Galahad going, my favorite color is blue. No, no, wait, red. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then just very quickly. So it is. It's so stupid. It's amazing. And just to shout out. Yeah, I think. This is the thing that I referenced about, like, it, it, it is almost, uh, like, kind of funnier in the retelling sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as you say, it's a lot quotable. It's mimetic. Again, it's mimetic before memes were a thing. It's it's the kind of, it's a it's very telling that this was usually successful in the era of the early internet before we knew what memes or viral content were. Um, where you can just reference a thing and point to a thing and people immediately understand because, as Luke said, it is a secret nerd handshake. But it's funny, yeah. like, that's part of why I think they're in a, a cultural kind of lower ebb now, because memes by their nature have kind of evolved past <laughs> what yeah. what 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 made people latch onto these. And I think it, it, there is something very early internet culture about yeah. Python, and there's something very Python about early internet culture. Uh, but, like... There's no reaction gifs of to Python, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's no, you know, it, and things like it is a silly place or look, you stupid bastard. Like these things could be reaction gifs, <laughs> but they're not. Yeah. These things aren't, you know, uh, lip synced in TikToks. They're not, you know, the, the kids aren't saying me these days. I is... suspect there's probably a lot of Monty Python on TikTok. I don't know because I'm not on TikTok because I'm an old man. Uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're old well if you're not a sleuth <laughs> yeah then, then myself and, and Andrew have no chance is there anything else you want to talk about with Monty Python the Holy Grail before we wrap up the podcast Luke Andrew um, I feel like we've covered all the best bits all the best <laughs> jokes um, the, actually again in terms of having more songs the <laughs> The little song about how cowardly Sir Robin is, is. Or, or how brave Sir Robin is. When danger reared his ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. Yeah, and it's like, again, it's it's the kind of threadbareness and the kind of ramshackleness of it is revealed because, like that that song is funny, but to get you to that point, you have to have an unfunny bit with the gay three headed guard thing, uh, and that goes on way too long. And the fact I that, did quite like you have awful breath. That's only because you don't brush my teeth. But the but the song going on too long is what makes the song funny. <laughs> uh, so it's yeah, I think I think there are some necessary evils when it comes to to Monty Python. You kind of have to accept, like with a lot of sketch stuff, some of the sketches are going to be crap. You have to accept that some of the bits are kind of oh yeah, it's going to be funny when they when they go on too long, and others it's going to be annoying when they go on too long, and you have to accept. Fucking Terry Gilliam, <laughs> and I love Brazil. You know, I, I was about to say, I love the the hatred you have for a solid third of the Monty Python team, Luke. It's 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 just it's just a fact of it's just, it's just by the nature of they are fucking arseholes. I think I think <laughs> like with bands or like with other comedy troops, I think it's the nature of it. You know, yeah. It, it, you look to you look at America. You know, like David Zucker is a fucking arsehole. 
Bill Murray's a fucking arsehole. Chevy Chase is a fucking arsehole. <laughs> you know, uh, in Ireland, half of the the, the community, yeah, fucking arseholes. Yeah, yeah, we'll include links in the show notes. On it's that. the nature yeah. of the beast. Um. All right, Andrew. What about yourself? That's anything else, Dad? No, that's that's pretty much it. I I I um yeah I I I like the the um not Guy the Lombard because I think that we don't see that character, but the 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 whole kind of like um the French guards who are like I shall taunt you a second time, um uh, <laughs> and your uh, mother smells of elderberry. <laughs> And the, Can them, you not tell from my outrageous accent? I think them firing cows is very funny as well. Um, if only because it's like feche la vache, which is just a great line. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love that this is degenerating into us just quoting the movie at each other. Well, that's um, it. That's kind of what the strength in a movie is. You, you put three white guys in a room. <laughs> <laughs> Within two hours, they will be quoting Monty Python, the Holy Grail at each other. Sorry, Andrew. No, 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 that's fine. Don't talk over me. I hate when people do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that brings them joy in these uncertain times. Because we are recording by the seat of our pants, Luke, it's whatever you reference will be very relevant by the time this comes out. But to give you a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Not really to do with the movie. Um, uh, just some things that I've been enjoying lately, and it, it, I I use kind of um, enjoying in the loose sense because I, I I watched After Sun, um, uh, oh. uh, Charlotte Wells, and it's terrific. It's, it's Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal, um, great performance from him and Frankie Corio, who 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 plays his daughter in it. It's it's. It's basically it's 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 a woman uh, recollecting her holiday with her um, her father from from years ago, and um, when she was um, eleven, and um, trying to I guess reframe it and make sense of some of the other things that she knows. It's it was devastating, uh, uh, heartbreaking. It, it it was also beautiful. It, it's, um, uh, Charlotte Wells. I haven't seen of her any of her other stuff. And when I looked at what her other stuff was, I wasn't really familiar with it. But she, she's got a great eye for light and color. And as I say, got great performances out of those two two leads. Um, I've just been so depressed ever since watching that movie. <laughs> I, I genuinely just like really upset. And then I realized the day after, why am I, why do I feel like shit? <laughs> it's, it's, it's that I watched after. That's when you should have got in under the wire before you came a father. I <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, exactly the thing. It's like, well, um, it's a, a, about like, what, what, if, what if, what will your daughter think of you? Or no, it, 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 it's also about kind of like, what if the ways in which I'm kind of like, like, okay, she's happy or messed up or, 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 what if that's a legacy that I'm giving to my, my, uh, my daughter? So it, it, it's like, you know, the kryptonite for my general great mood <laughs> Andrew, <laughs> if days. you if you if you haven't watched all of us strangers yet maybe give it a fortnight maybe and and of course on, on on the same topic um i i i i plugged um season one episode one of yellowstone um and i think you'll agree <laughs> listeners it was a doozy 
I mean, what a way <laughs> to start the series. And season uh, season one, episode two is it? Uh, of course, kill the messenger is is sort of picking up from where you left off. Is uh, as the dust sort of settles from that whole shootout, the Duttons deal with the potential repercussions. Of course, the Duttons being John, Beth, Case, Jamie, Monica Dutton, of course, little Tate Dutton. Um, Every, can, I, I love that. I love that you say, as we all know, of course, <laughs> everyone knows the second episode of Yellowstone is called Kill the Messenger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, every conversation about modern television is like, it sounds like you're making it up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Little Tim Dunn. Yellowstone, a show that we all watch and know. Of course. It's still it's still on and you are watching it. It's, it's funny because Yellowstone is a, like a, a genuinely popular TV show. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it has spin-offs and everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. It it's probably better it's probably more popular than some of the television shows we have covered on this podcast. Like is yeah, I'd say it's b- b- bigger than like I'd say stuff like Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad yeah. even. But we're all watching for all mankind, right? We, right. <laughs> <laughs> we can all agree. <laughs> if I was doing a bit <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have to recognize if. that I, I, I like, okay, how do I work? <laughs> I have heard that it's okay. And of course, I am also watching it. <laughs> I've heard that it's good. Um, yeah. I've heard good things for myself. I'm, I'm not watching it because it's good. I'm watching it because I'm an, <laughs> a father a now. I, I love, by the way, that your bit has evolved from I am going to watch Yellowstone one episode at a time <laughs> to I'm going to pretend to watch Yellowstone one episode at a time. <laughs> but, <laughs> Least effort. It's a punk. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. What even is the point of the podcast? Andrew's new podcast, Brick by Brick, <laughs> a Yellowstone podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at War of the Duttons. But yes, Luke, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, in the spirit of classical British comedy, uh, my recommendation is a 1961 British film, uh, Dentist on the Job, uh, starring <laughs> Bob Monkhouse. Um, <laughs> Colonel Proudfoot of Proudfoot Industries aims to entice a couple of dentists to advertise Dream, which is like a revolutionary kind of two Luke, Luke, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not funny. Oh, no. <laughs> no, this is, it makes it better. <laughs> Record scratched. Do you, do you want me to insert another record scratch? <laughs> um, actually, in in kind of mirror to 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 my kind of stating throughout this podcast that uh, a more singular and more budgeted and better realized vision of one's creative impulses leads to a better, better, better work of art. Uh, in contrast to it, and also underlining it, and also in the spirit of kind of bizarre sketch cinema this is me now a love story <laughs> by jennifer lopez is my recommendation uh, oh you got to see it i knew i knew you were planning to but you had a busy schedule you got you actually got to see it uh, everyone should see it um it, 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 it in that it is a perfect uh realization of jennifer lopez's self-image and vision as a creative artist i cannot say in good faith that it is good but i, I must say that you must watch it <laughs> uh 
How does it rank compared to the Eras Tour and, and Renaissance? That, and that actually, it is good. See, it's you. It's not like those. Okay. There. Okay. Do you know Because I, I think I think J Lo is great. I'm I'm a J Lo stan. Whatever the word for a J Lo stan is, I I am one of those. Uh, have you seen the cell, Darren? I assume you have. Yes, yes, of course I've seen the cell. Very formative text for me. Vincent D'Onofrio. Okay, so, yeah, Jennifer Lopez goes into Vincent D'Onofrio's brain. Yeah, so like, what if J-Lo made the cell and it was about J-Lo? <laughs> what if J-Lo was going into J-Lo's brain? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think everyone, I think it should be mandatory in schools. I think everyone should watch it. I think we should talk about it on this podcast. But we uh, will be I talking think... about it in September. It's 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 on the, the yeah, Leaving Cert. It's on the Leaving Cert curriculum. Yeah, so we will be doing another back to school season that will include Barbie, it will include the Banshees of Venice Year, and it will include uh, J-Lo's new and the, movie. And, and the Roddy Dangerfield movie. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, this is, one of those, this is one of those things, if you keep joking, it will happen. Um, like, the last time you made that joke, I pointed out it is actually quite doable. Dangerfield's career is actually quite short. We could do all eight in two months. But what, what I realized and shared with you on the text chain... <laughs> Is is that that joke throughout like the back to school series, where we're saying that it it, it we're going to do cover the, a, the Rodney a, cover the movies of Rodney Dangerfield? That's reference on an earlier episode <laughs> of Beauty and the Beast, where for some reason we talk about doing the exact same thing. <laughs> we're willing it into being uh, Luke. We need a co- we need a guest co-host. Um, <laughs> well, weirdly, Rodney Dangerfield's animated dog movie yeah rover dangerfield for some reason also a movie that was very formative in my childhood just by it being on cartoon network constantly <laughs> and for some reason as the t- i can't imagine it holds up at all now well luke this september <laughs> but at, at the time i would have watched it a lot having no knowledge of what dangerfield was <laughs> or why this cartoon dog was doing this shtick about how he gets no respect <laughs> it's like our our contempt for the premise of this podcast <laughs> yeah, it's only growing yeah. um but so is is that your your recommendation then do you want anything else you want to shout out or uh no this is me now will be my recommendation going From forward now until forever <laughs> until we cover it i'll further um, notice um, this is me now. Recommendations will continue until morale improves. Until people watch it, you know, which nobody ever listens to my recommendations for stuff anyway. So I can kind of say whatever we I want. D- we, people do. <laughs> people do, Luke. Don't don't listen to Darren when he says. And is there anything else that you want to recommend? <laughs> <laughs> Very passive aggressive. Yeah. Um, anything? Yes. Any, any actual recommendations? Anything people might actually watch? <laughs> do you watch Dentist on the Job? I have to imagine it is in its entirety on YouTube. I, th- I, I think part of the reason that, that the Python struggled conceptually with, with, with the, the production process of a movie is for so long the British themselves kind of <laughs> found movie production to be a th- throwaway... Uh... Oh, like, the National Review review of this opens with, like, so, hey, the British finally managed to make a movie. Um, yeah. That's, like, the American coverage of Monty Python the Holy Grail is, like, yeah, so the British managed to make a movie not directed by Ken Russell. I guess we should be thankful for that. I mean, it's not dead to some of the job. But it's That's fair. Um, okay, because I because I know when this is coming out, which is next weekend, I can actually give like two recommendations that are, are relatively timely, and, and they're recommendations to things that I've already mentioned in the context of this movie, and they kind of get back to that point of like, 
who cares about feudalism anyway, because they're they're both kind of about feudalism. So the first one is Shogun, which is premiering on FX in the States and is premiering on Disney Plus internationally. That is an adaptation of the classic doorstop novel. I have seen the first eight episodes of the show. They are very good. I wholeheartedly recommend them. Uh, it, it, it's a proper old-fashioned epic. It, the kind they don't really make anymore, to use that cliche. It, it's very much FX kind of stepping into the space of wanting something to compete with Game of Thrones. Uh, I, I thought it was fantastic. Um, it stars Hiroki Sanada, who is like one of the finest actors of his generation. He's just, he's phenomenal here. Um, and I, I really, really, really enjoyed it. It looks gorgeous. It was shot in Vancouver, uh, not in Japan, but it looks gorgeous. It has rich atmosphere. It's got fascinating characters. It's it's beautifully written. Um, I, I would wholeheartedly kind of recommend that. And the other recommendation that's out this weekend is Dune 2 is in cinemas, and we are probably going to end up talking about it on this podcast, so I'm not going to recommend it too much. That does, of course, raise the interesting question of how exactly we're going to figure out, how we're going to do that, given that, you know... Andrew has certain obligations that may make it very difficult for him to go to an IMAX screening of Dune 2. You know, I yeah, I don't know if, if Andrew's daughter is quite ready for her first proper IMAX experience, but, you know, I'm, I'm willing to throw the idea out there. We can have the conversation I off think, mic. I, 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 like, as I understand it, the, like, all of the, a lot of the baby screenings are for general audience. Um, and I'm guessing Dune isn't that. Like technically, they they could card um, my baby, um, your baby on the way, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you have to put a little mustache on her. Um. Yeah, she she'd have to say like I um born I was born in like 2002, 2006. Six? Like it's crazy yeah. the the uh, fake birthdays that kids are <laughs> giving these days. They're they're in the the. 21st century they make you feel so old yeah. it, it, it's that joke from succession it's like if you're chatting to a girl at a bar ask her if she remembers 9-11 um, <laughs> but yeah I, I would wholeheartedly recommend dune part two it is it is a phenomenal piece of cinema it's epic it's moving uh i saw it last week i will have already seen it twice more by the time this episode comes out uh it is a phenomenal piece of cinema uh it is also like this movie arguably not a complete movie unto itself in that it is half of a movie but it is phenomenal as far as big hollywood studio filmmaking goes i it's the best imax experience i've had since oppenheimer um so if you haven't seen it i would wholeheartedly recommend it all right so if listeners are looking for a bit more luke done in their lives where can they find you watch out watch up to uh you can find me as always on filmanddubbin.ie or on all the socials i mean not tiktok maybe maybe this is the year it breaks me uh at film in Dublin uh, so check me out there perfect uh, you can find us on Twitter on SoundCloud on Stitcher at the 250 uh, please feel free to rate review and subscribe a lot of people have been listening lately if you want to throw any recommendations for us or, or trying to drop a five star review we would really 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 appreciate don't, it don't limit um, uh, suggestions to movies that are on the 250 or bottom 100 within our brief <laughs> <laughs> yeah. why should um, you have to uh, <laughs> <laughs> The people sp- responsible for programming this podcast have been sacked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the people responsible for sacking the people responsible for this podcast have been sacked. <laughs> and we'll be back next week, lining up with the Academy Awards, 
to celebrate the possible assumed win of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer in both Best Picture and Best Director. Yeah, that's right, I'm saying it out loud, which means it's definitely not going to happen now. We're going to talk about Memento, Christopher Nolan's second film, his first theatrical release, his breakout hit. And joining us for that discussion will be two amazing guests. First of all, the wonderful Kurt North. Second of all, the fantastic Phil Bagnell. Check that out next Saturday. Take it easy, guys. Thanks so much, Lou. Thank you. Bye. Well, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Right.